In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present to fill us all things, a treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell in us, and cleanse the very stain, and save our souls, a good one. The often asked question from Orthodox Christians is why do they feel dead at times? Why do they feel that their heart is hard, unfeeling, etc.? And if someone has that question, that in some ways is better than for a person not to notice it or to believe that they actually do have feelings, etc. Of course, there are some Christians who do have more suitable feelings, but in general, Christians do find that they are dead. And even though people commune and even though people do some prayers and even though people might fast and do some reading, something's missing. And we did say last month that uh, we talked about Holy Communion. That was Talk 26. We talked about that people commune, but they don't do something else. And who remembers what that something was that they don't, that people aren't doing? We said that people will commune, but they're not doing something else which needs to be done for someone to be able to commune. Even though today, even some priests, or a lot of priests, will advise their people commune, 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 but there's something missing. Now, what was that that was missing? Who remembers? Sorry? Preparing. Repenting. That's correct. All those. That there is no spiritual struggle which leads to repentance. What uh, Alexi said is, is interesting. He said to prepare. And I would have to say that a lot of times people do say, I'm preparing for communion. And to them, preparation is before communion, they do, might do some prayers and some fasting, and that's preparation. I would say that is not always good because preparation for communion should be continual. It should be, which we're going to talk about today. It should be all the time, but we will come back to that. That was a point there. That question was actually asked to Elder Paisios, where someone went up to him and said, Yerunda, or Elder, I don't have a heart. And the older answered, you do, you do have a heart, but as soon as it tries to act, your mind puts like a hold onto it. You must try to acquire the logic of the heart, faith and love. And then the person says, and how can I achieve this? And he says, if you stop thinking logically, you'll be able to start working spiritually on yourself. So one of the reasons for our hard hearts is the fact that, uh, which we've talked about in the other talks, 
is to do with this logic, using our mind. A lot of people have spiritual lives, but it's all in the mind. In other words, it's psychological. Preparation for communion is psychological. Uh, praying is psychological. Reading is psychological. Everything's just a mental exercise. It has nothing to do with the heart. You see, to use your mind is easy, but when you have to make your heart to participate, that's difficult. So what people do is they kind of forget about the heart and just work with their minds and say, okay, and I understand the Bible with their minds and I am doing a spiritual life, but it's all with the mind. It's all in the head. And that's not good. That actually leads to mental breakdowns and things like that. That is very, very dangerous. This person asked the elder, what should I study, elder, to help me get rid of my secular logic? And he said, first you must read the Yerondikon, which I want to get some of those. That's the what's called the Sayings of the Desert Fathers, little stories and teachings of the fathers who lived in the desert. They're really simple, like those ones that I read you a few months ago, like the elder said to the monk to put a stick in the ground and water it. Like little stories like that to teach about obedience and faith and um, God's mercy, little, all those type of things. So even though the lives of saints and those things do that, but it's also good, according to the advice of the elder here, is for us to obtain some of these books, which they call in Greek the Yerondiko, and I think even in English they still call it that. Evergetinos um, is another thing. They're just basic, the saints of the Desert Fathers. But when you read the lives of saints because they're all mixed in there. We have some desert fathers in there. And then you read the life and it says the elder said this and then he did this. So it's the same type of thing. But these other books that I want to get, hopefully, is going to be more concentrated on those things. Uh, all these books are practical, not theoretical. Their simple patristic spirit and holiness will help you remove secular logic from your mind. Next, you should read Avaisakwa. That's, that's nothing. And another person, uh, Elder, when I feel my heart become hard like a rock, what should I do? And then the Elder replied, Your problem is not a hard heart, but a mind driven heart. A heart that is really driven from the mind. Your entire heart has been taken over by your mind. And your heart is obedient to your mind. In other words, whatever the mind. The mind is the boss, what we can say. But there is still a chance for your heart to go back, to become proper again. How? Each day you must read a canon from the Theotokarian. If you want your heart to get back in shape, that's the best medicine. You do have a heart, but it's been clouded by logic. You are following the European way. So we have what's called the Eastern way, which is Eastern Orthodox, and we have what's called the Western way, which is the Western Church, the Protestants, the Catholics. They are completely absorbed in logic. They are driven by their mind. For example, Elder Paisio says that the Western Church, the Catholics, went as far is that they wanted to put their Holy Communion, what they call their Holy Communion, their, those wafers that they've got, under an X-ray machine to see 
whether they can see the holiness of the of the of what they call their holy communion. While in the Eastern Orthodox Church, we don't do those things. Of course, there are people who use their logic and say that, oh, why, why venerate an icon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the pious Orthodox Christians have at their availability the examples of the saints, and they have the tradition of the church to be able to enter into the correct spirit. The West don't have that. I said to a person the other day uh, that uh, the, the Western church, the Catholics, are, are, as time goes on, they are taking off their list of saints, many of the great saints that we recognise, because remember that the Catholic church and the Orthodox church were together up to around the 11th, 11th century. And I said that they've taken off St Nicholas and St George and St Christopher, I think, and St Bavara, I can't remember exactly, a lot, a lot of saints. And so they said to me, why is that? And I said, well, it's good that they've done that. It's actually not, not good. It is a, a logical conclusion for them to take off the list those saints. And the person looked at me funny, thinking that I'm a heretic or something's going on. Why would I say that? And the reason why the Catholics actually said that they... Oh, no, they, they didn't say take it off. I think what they said is, if you want to believe it, you can, but if you don't, you don't have to, because the miracles and the life of those saints, like St. Saint George, St. Demetrius, etc., are so marvellous, it can't be logically understood. Remember that they go with their logic... So when they read these lives, it, to them it's, it doesn't make sense of that St. George and the dragon and they appeared and they flew here and they went in and done this and raised the dead and all these type of things, it to them is just beyond. So a lot of the Westerners would become in trouble, the Protestants, of course, as we know, throughout the saints centuries before. That was too much for them a long time ago. And the Catholics are following and that's logical. That is actually that conclusion that they come to makes sense. And the reason why I say it makes sense is because of the following. If you remember when I read to you um, account, when, we, when we did the talk Encounters of Elder Porfirios and how a Catholic monk came to him, if you remember, and Elder Porfirios started to say to this monk exactly who lives in the monk's monastery in Italy and that there was a nun's monastery somewhere close by and he described that monastery and he described the, the monk's monastery, he described the people in there, etc. The monk, the Catholic monk, was surprised and he was shocked, well better still shocked, he was shocked and he said, I've never seen this before. And Elder Porfirio says, no you haven't because this only happens in the Orthodox Church. These gifts of the Holy Spirit can only be attained in the Orthodox Church, said that great saint. Therefore, what does that tell us? The Catholic Church, for centuries and centuries and centuries, have never produced saints 
as we know Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why when we read our modern-day saints, we can't see difference between the modern-day saints of the Orthodox Church and the, the saints of centuries in the past because Christ is the same. The same gifts that were in St. George can be in our modern-day saints. If you read, which I want to get Elder Yakovos of Evia, another Greek saint, he lived in a monastery that had there the relics of St. David of Evia. It's an island in Greece. And in that life when I was reading it, it was like miracle on miracle on miracle and remarkable and, and um, the saint and all these things. This is not known in the Catholic Church. So for us, we're not shocked if we read an old saint of the past because we can read a new a saint of today and we see the, that there's not any difference. And that these saints, we have Elder Paisios lived up to 994, Elder Porphyrios 991, and so many. St. John of Cronstein, for example, who was in the beginning of the last century. Sorry, he died in the beginning of the last century, 1908, I can't remember, 14. And we read his life and see the miracles that he performed when serving the liturgy, his clairvoyance, the Optina elders, St. Xenia, St. Seraphim of Sarov. That saint was full of the Holy Spirit. Latins can't understand it. So therefore, that's why I said, not that I'm a heretic, I would say logically what they're doing is correct because they've got nothing in these days. They've got no saints to see that there is no difference. That's why it's very important when you read Lives of Saints to read the ancient ones but also read the modern ones. And that's why on purpose I actually um, did those talks on Elder Paisios, which was around one, two, three, four, five maybe, and Elder Porfirios, about five or six talks, in detail. Saints that lived in our times. I would have done a Serbian or Russian, but... I wanted to do those two because of a couple of reasons. One, they are so popular all over the world. There are so many books about them. As well as the fact that I had some encounters with them myself, plus the fact that I've been to Greece and I understand that when I read other lives of saints, sometimes when, they, when you read, say, a Serbian life of saint, if you haven't been in Serbia, it's a bit hard sometimes to picture things. and uh, Not that it's in, you don't get any benefit, but for me, that's what I thought. And that's why I, I read those lives of saints. Anyone have any questions so far on what we've said? Sometimes when you people ask questions, there are things that I might have not said or needs clarifying, and I think that's um, good. Do they occasionally 
God does miracles for everyone, but it's not the same as someone that's got the gift. So God can do a miracle for a Muslim. They don't believe in Christ. God can do a miracle for a Buddhist. Miracles in and of themselves is not what I was talking about. I was talking about these the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Our saints, through their clairvoyance, through their gifts, through their love, through their humility, through their faith, through knowing the past, knowing the future, and things like that, that is something specific to orthodoxy. As we read in the Bible that God gives his light, his sun, his rain to everyone. And there could be a person in hospital who could have a certain disease and the doctor said, finished, that's it. And then suddenly he gets better. And then the doctors say, we don't understand. That person might not even have faith. Or someone else prayed for them. It might have been a Protestant. It might have been a... It doesn't matter. So what we see is that God can still do miracles. Whether all the miracles that these people see are correct is another question. And whether all the miracles that happen in the Orthodox Church by some what people see or hear or whatever, we can't believe everything. I'm talking about the ones that have been confirmed, that are available, and which... Have that. That's why when you read the lives of saints, you'll see that the miracles that, that our saints did are not just those type of things of healing bodies and things like that. They were far greater, working out problems that had no solutions. We, we read all, all those things. So we can't reject everything, but we can't accept everything that happens. But the main thing is that they do not produce the saints that the Orthodox Church produces. Two examples. We have many relics of our saints who have not undergone corruption. They are completely uh, with their hands, fingers, or their all their uh, muscles, everything. The Catholic Church does not produce that. They say they do, but they don't. This is something which is given to the Orthodox Church and only the Orthodox Church. And the other one is the holy water. Catholics have holy water, what they call holy water, which they add salt or some chemical preservative. So and go off. As Elder Paisio says in that section when he speaks about this logic and Westerners and things like that, he goes, the Orthodox holy water lasts for centuries and centuries and centuries. It doesn't go off. But we don't use salt and we don't use chemicals. We don't use preservatives. This is something which is a particular thing which happens for the Orthodox Church. Does that answer your uh, question? When someone tells you, look, when people come up to me and they say, oh, this happened and that happened... You know, whether they are Orthodox or whether they're Catholics or whether they're unbelievers or I don't know, it doesn't really matter. I don't, you can't reject everything because who are we? If we had an elder here, because they have that gift, they know what's from God, what's from the devil, what's from human, just physical. They know. A lot, of, a lot of times we don't know. Even those appearances when they say, and the soul came out of the body, like I read in talk number one. And there's all these things that happen even to unbelievers. 
one person that was here that time, he wanted me to say to everyone, they're all demonic. And I said, I can't say that. I don't know which is demonic, which is not, except when it is completely contrary to the Orthodox Church's teaching. So it's very hard to say. You know, people say they see visions, they see dreams. I don't say what they saw was from the devil, because who I don't know. What I say is our saints have always taught to ignore, not to seek miracles in visions and dreams because the devil can lead us into, uh, as St. Paul says, the, the devil can make himself appear as an angel of light. So our saints forbid it. But we have uh, those examples of dreams and visions and things like that from our saints. And we believe that because they were holy as their whole life shows. But as for someone else, I don't know. St. John Climacus says if some dream leads to um, repentance, possibly, if it leads to hopelessness, one person can see themselves in hell and they can become hopeless and become crazy and then he says that's from the devil. But St. John Climacus says, but if you, someone sees themselves in hell and it brings them to repentance and change of life, then that's from God. So it depends. But it's always good to check with the spiritual father. So let's now get to our main... Thanks for that question. That, now we get to the main part of the, what we want to talk about today. I'm basing what I've written here on a Russian saint, which is Saint Ignatius... I don't know, say the seconds, branch, where was the Branchinov? Branchinov? Yeah. And he, thank you, and he has written many books, and one of them, which is one of the, some of, one of his works, is in this book here, which is the arena. Now, I bought this book when I was first in the church, and I have to say that this book helped me a lot because it's, even though it's written for monastics, and I'm not one who likes to tell beginners to read monastic books because people go a bit haywire and think that they're monastics when they're married. And how can you be a monastic when you've got children? I'd be on It's a new type of breed of monasticism. This book I do recommend because St. Ignatius had the gift of discernment. And he, re as you'll notice in a minute, and he penetrated into authentic spiritual life similar to Father Seraphim Rose. Same thing. He was, these people have the gift, a great gift of discernment to know what's from God, what's from the devil, what comes just from human, from our human self. And therefore, when I started reading this book many, many years ago, I first came to the church, it actually helped me. And I have to say that it put me on the right track to some extent, especially to do with deception. When I was speaking to our metropolitan, Ilarion, and he goes, oh, he was saying it as well, he goes with enthusiasm, he goes, I, I love the works of St. Ignatius. He goes, when you read them, they're really meaty. Meaty means that when you read it, basically every line is fantastic. It, it has something for you to get at. Some books, unfortunately, you read, 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 and it takes a while until you get something. But this person had this gift that he was... Anyway, you'll see if you... And that book is available, which I bought plenty of them on purpose because I believe that it's an excellent book. Now, St. Ignatius says, Spiritual life that is not based on the commandments of the gospel is like a building without 
foundation, it will collapse. We have our architect here, and we will know that, uh, well, it's common sense, that all buildings need a foundation. Because if you don't make a foundation for the building, then you know, the bigger the building, you have big foundation. That's why when they make these big buildings in, in, in the city, you see the hole is so deep. They have to put in really deep foundations so the building can stand. All our houses that we live in, whatever, the units, they all have foundations. Now, in spiritual life, we also need the foundations. If not, our spiritual life will collapse. And that, St. Ignatius says, is that your spiritual life is based on the commandments of the gospel. I remember when I read this years ago, because I haven't had this book for a while, somehow I lost mine, and I just got this when I bought these books recently, and I finally got it again, I started reading it to my um, joy. And I remember that we have to base our lives on the gospel. Someone asked me the other day when I said to them what I'm going to speak about, they said, well, what are the commandments of the gospel? And what's the answer? The commandments of the gospel are, well, what did I say to this person? I should have said, I think I didn't, I think I didn't want to be rude because I was too busy thinking about what I wanted to do in the talk. The answer is the commandments of the gospel are in the gospel. Obviously, you don't read it. So if you read it, you wouldn't ask the question. So how many Orthodox Christians really read the gospel? We're going to come to that. When I speak to people, or when a, any priest speaks to a person, or a spiritual person to another spiritual person, whatever, you, we, we like to refer to the gospel. So when new people come and they ring up or ask me questions and they say something and it comes to my mind I go oh you know the example where Christ says this they go no oh. and then you speak on a bit more and I say um, don't forget you know without me you can do nothing remember when Christ said that no so it becomes very frustrating when you're trying to talk about the spiritual life when the person hasn't read the gospel or has not, does not read the gospel. I won't say hasn't read, because read means you've read it, and that's the end of it. Does not read the gospel. What's the difference? What read is you've read it, put it away. Read means that you read it continually. Someone, sorry, some who do not concern themselves with the interior life, the inner life, and the and activity of the soul, or do very little and exercise themselves only in bodily activity. Now, here we're going to go on. Important part. The saint is saying that there are people who, who what Christians should lead an inner life. They have to be that go within themselves, which we're going to come to that soon. But he's saying that there are those who won't do that, who won't lead the inner life, but only do some bodily activities that the church has. For example, fasting, vigils, that means to stay up. Stay up, go to church, stay up for a vigil for a long time. Some vigils in Mount Athos take 14 hours, continual service. That's vigils. And some people, uh, lay people might say, I'm going to try and stay up tonight and, and 
pray and keep up and try to beat this sleep that comes on me every time I try to pray and things. Prostrations is a physical thing. And other oppressions of the body, oppressions are some saints used to wear or some people used to wear hair shirts. Hair shirts are shirts which have got rough hair, like from an animal or something. When they wear it, it cuts into their body. It makes them suffer. Chains. Some people, some of our, some of our saints did wear chains. Uh, some used to sleep on the floor. Some would stand for long periods of time. And I don't know if you know, but some of these... Um, I know when I stand, for example, for myself in services, if you have bad circulation and the blood's not going down and up and down your feet, up your legs, then what happens is that the legs begin to open wounds up. And you read that some of the lives of saints, that there were elders who would stand for long periods of time, ignore their legs to have them up. Some of them didn't even sleep in beds at all. These are called bodily, like doing things to, to, to make the body suffer, one can say. And their legs opened up and they were bloody. When I was in Manathos and I went to a monastery, there was a holy, a holy older, which I didn't, probably I didn't know myself properly then, and his name was uh, Matthew, Elder Matthew. And he was a priest at the monastery of Caracalo, one of the 20 monasteries. And he's... Podvig, one can say, his thing was to serve liturgy every day. He would serve the liturgy every single day. And to serve liturgy and to do all the preparations, sometimes you have to be on your feet for hours. And once I saw him, after the liturgy, that he was somewhere in a certain corner of the place in the monastery there, and his feet were up on the chair. And he had taken off his socks. Obviously, common sense would say, well, wasn't he going to lie down? So it sounds like not only is serving liturgy, but maybe he used to never sleep in his bed, which also Archbishop John of Shanghai and San Francisco also had that practice. He never slept in his bed. So when I went past and I noticed him, his legs were full of blood, which means, obviously, being very, he was very old. It might have been, when I saw him, 80 plus. And um, his legs were full of, his, all, his, all his legs were bloody with scabs and things like that because of that particular podvig, this asceticism that he chose. Who knows what else he did? Some people used to put rocks in their shoes. Some people used to go around barefoot. That's why we have one, I think it was one called the Simeon the Barefoot. I can't remember. There's, well, there's one elder there that did that. Others, like Saint Xenia, ignored the hot and cold. When we read her life a couple of years ago, I can't remember now, that she would go out in the heat. The stylites, the ones that used to have their asceticism in a column, like a pillar, used to sit on, stand on top of the pillar and they would stand there, whether it was hail, rain, heat, etc., standing up. One of the volumes of our lives at the back, those ones to 30, had there that St. Simeon got to the stage where I think, if I remember right, 
his legs had um, worms or something like that. Is that correct? Do you remember that? Some type of um, maggots. For us, all this is illogical. Another set of bodily type of thing would be, well, not really, I suppose it's not really a bodily thing, but let's just put it in anyway, silence. Others would go out into the desert and see no one, live on their own. These are some of the practices which our saints did. In Russia, when there was a revival of spiritual life, I think, don't quote me, I think it was the 19th century, I'm not sure, especially with those way, the way of the pilgrim, those, that pilgrim book that came out on the Jesus prayer, and a lot of people started to practice these things. So they're all around Russia. There was always these people on, their, on the road going to monastery to monastery, things like that, with their chains and their rocks and, and things like that. And many of them were deceived. St. Ignatius is saying that those people who practice those things but not the inner life do not have a sting of conscience. What does that mean? Their conscience doesn't sting them, doesn't bother them. They do not have at all their conscience convicting them and telling them that's a sin that's not a, you know that's a sin to make them guilty and this is a form of pharisaism that's what the pharisees had the pharisees kept a few things they fasted as they said twice a week they gave one tenth to the temple even to the parsley as we said the coming whatever they call it over there and i think that's in those areas and they kept their way of their bowing and standing in the temple and all these things which were external, and they kept the commandments to some degree, but not the inner life, nothing to do with their inside. Everything was done out of pride. And as a result of that, they, they did not have a conscience such that when God came, when God became man and walked on earth and spoke and did miracles, etc., they were not moved at all. They were what we say in Greek, anesthiti, which means they are uh, completely without any sense of anything. They just they have no feeling. Blind as bats. You know the bats? We've got a tree near, the, near, near our monastery where they go and, and they, I don't know if they're blind, but they say that they're blind, but for some reason when they go to that tree... They get their mulberries, and later on, as they're flying back wherever they're flying, I don't know how they do it, but they seem to drop purple things all over our backyard. So you can see that they're blind, but I think the bats are less blind than those who practice these things in, out of pride and vainglory. Now we come to this very interesting point. So any questions so far on that? It confusing at all? Yes? Relating to that thing that you said, um, people who do external stuff can't really feel a sting of conscience. Could that be likened to, you know, those people who um, uh, have broken away from um, the, the road called church, um, they're very focused on external stuff, 
And when you tell them something, oh, but the elders said this and we should be more forgiving, is that why they can't feel that? Anyone, whether it's, I don't know about them, but anyone who leads a life according to externals is a Pharisee. And we, in a way, all of us have it, either less or more, we all suffer from Phariseeism. But when it's really bad is when the person has no conscience, doesn't care. And today in the Orthodox Church, a lot of people believe that Orthodoxy is to like, um, I'm going to commune and I'm going to, that's not, not saying, but I'm going to prepare. And what is the preparation you're going to do? Fasting. Or a couple of prayers. A lot of people believe that orthodoxy is, if you're Russian or Serbian, for example, that it's standing in church because they don't have the, the pews like the Greeks do. So they put the Greeks down and say, oh, they have Catholic chairs, whatever they call them, stalls or pews, pews, popular pews, whatever they call them there. And we have no chairs and we therefore stand in church for the whole service. And they're proud of that. And they say, we stand for three hours, four hours in the service without moving. It's very difficult for one to do that. And especially if the devil's fighting, then the person's going to have problems and that's part of the spiritual life. Obviously, the best is to stand in church. And it's true that those chairs are a Western influence, but it doesn't mean that the people aren't orthodox. But just to have your orthodoxy on standing or your orthodoxy on fasting is a form of Phariseeism. It's just, it's just like Phariseeism. Now, we go on to this. These people who suffer from these things without knowing, they feel a peace within them which they are happy with. Now, this is very important. Deceived people are quite peaceful. See the Jehovah Witnesses when they come around? People can say, are these saints? What are these people? They come and you tell them off and they remain calm. Or the other ones that ride the bikes and they call themselves elders, like I think if you've got a crowbar and threw it in their spokes as they're driving past and the bike goes for a six, and then they'll actually, uh, and then they actually will stand up and say, as they do, good afternoon, good morning, and they walk off. So they're very peaceful people. Buddhists are very peaceful too. Some people believe that even some Orthodox, if they see them peaceful, it's a sign that they are saintly, that they are spiritual. And it's true that the saints did have peace after many years of struggle with humility, with love, with faith, with repentance, etc. But I don't know how people have this peace without struggles and things like that, which we'll see. So this thing about the peace, they believe that the peace that they are experiencing is due to their many good works which is confirmed by others who a lot of times praise them. 
So these people that feel this peace, they actually feel peace because they think that it's because they are doing a good spiritual life. And others, sent by the devil a lot of times, go up to them and praise them. I remember one person who used to be really into that. He used to love to look peaceful. And then people would come up to him and say to him, oh, whatever his name was, you look so peaceful, you look so spiritual, your face is shining and this and that. And I'd say to him, what you want is what you got. If the saints heard such praise, they could tell off the person who said it or they'd run away. But this person loved to hear it. So what you want is what you get. Do you like people? Do we like people saying those things about us? If we do, we've lost ourselves. If we don't, that's a good sign. They also think that God is pleased with them and that he has granted them the gift of grace because of their blameless and virtuous life. This peace can even turn into great joy. I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Do you understand that? So where do we see this, this uh, ecstatic uh, joy? Do we see it in the Orthodox Church? No, even though there are some that there are some branches here and there that are into that, but very no. Where do we see that? Pentecostals. Benny, not Benny Hill, Benny Hinn, right? <laughs> then we have um, those other ones. What are they called? The uh, who? Hillsong. Hillsong. And it's, there's a very big emphasis on joy and be filled with the Spirit and with the grace of God and sing joy. And they all start doing, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and they go like this and they go like that and they say, the joy of the Lord. I don't know. Anyway, that's what they do. And according to Orthodox tradition, this is not a spirit of God. Where did we see the apostles do that? Where did we see the saints, the ancient saints do that? Where did we see Christ do that? Christ is the perfect example. Where did we see him do those type of things? Laugh and go into fits. It's interesting sometimes to actually see it. They, 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 they show their rallies on TV sometimes. And I was watching it once and this person, supposedly the Benny Hill person, made him better and then he was running up and down and here and there and he was showing that he was better and he was jumping and joyful and laughing and etc, etc. This is not orthodox. Now, are we saying that they not get better? I don't know whether they're getting better, whether it's deception uh, to a full extent, but one has to observe this particular pastor, whatever he calls himself, the man in the white suit there, and see that the man is full of pride. He believes he's Christ where he walks up and he puts the hand on the person and the, puts his hand like that and the person starts to shake and falls down. Those things don't occur in the Orthodox Church unless the person's possessed. Then, yes, if a saint went up to a person that was possessed, perhaps, then they would, like it says, that Christ went up to the young boy that was possessed and then he, would, he convulsed, whatever the word is there, and he was shaking and he fell down on the ground. 
to show the harm that the demons do. That's why God allowed it. God could have taken the demon out in an easier way. But that boy, when the demon was coming out, he was like he was going to tear him apart. And that was done so that the people could see how evil the demons are and how, if God did not control them, how they could destroy people. So, this peace can even turn into great joy. They never stop thinking that this joy is a gift of grace. And I put here examples, the gurus, Eastern religions, a lot of heretics, the Benny Hill person, and many other evangelists and born-again Christians. I know his name is Benny Hinn, but to me it's one in, you know, six or one half a dozen, as they say. The saint says, such woeful self-deception, St. Ignatius says about these people. Now, woeful does not mean that he's, like, in a way, when I first read woeful, I go, what is the, I know. Where in Greek, woeful. So I looked it up in the dictionary and it actually says pitiful, sorrowful. So the saints speaking about these things in a very, very sorrowful way where he's saying that he feels sorry for them the way they are. I'm obviously saying a lot of things in a way negative, but some of them know what they're doing is wrong and some of them are victims. I say to the ones that are victims, woe, woeful, pitiful, sorrowful, you feel sorry, they're looking for something. But then there's others who they read the Gospels, so the Protestants still read Gospels, and they know in there there's references to pride, etc., etc., which they tend to ignore. For them, it's more harsh, and that's why Christ spoke harshly about the Pharisees of their way of life very harshly because some of it, for for many of them, it was self-willed. They did it themselves. When Christ came along and did all those miracles and taught, they had the opportunity then to repent, to change, but they didn't. They remained, and that's why he became strict. He didn't put the Romans down, as I've said in other talks. He didn't put the fornicators down and the prostitutes and everything else there. He put them down, In the, if you read of the Gospels. He put down the Pharisees. He put down those who should have known better. Who has ever done? Who has ever opened the eyes of a blind man? They said. They should have changed. Who was this man that was paralytic or the person that was possessed? What did they say about the people that were possessed that got better by from Christ healing them? They go, oh, he did that with the power of the demons. So they can see that they were willfully blind. And when someone's willfully blind, that's when those who are in the position of authority have to become more strict, like heretics, when they wouldn't stop their heresy and when they used to have the synods, and if they didn't stop their heresies, then the church would anathematize them as the last resort. Anathematize means they are cut off from the church, cut off from God. There is no salvation unless they repent. So don't think that the church, oh, it's too strict, too strict, and we shouldn't speak like that. What soul-destroying blindness? This deceptive piece is simply insensitivity and unawareness of your sinfulness due to your negligent life. So he's, and it is, it is the fruit of self-opinion, self-satisfaction, in other words, uh, being pleased with oneself. So this blindness, this Phariseeism, comes 
from a and it produces insensitivity. We said that further above, and this is because the person is not doing a proper spiritual life. The person has self opinion, and the person is self satisfied. The person is proud, etc. This is the root. This is the reason. This is the reason for all our problems, actually, all of us. St. Ignatius says that the person who fulfills the commandments of the gospel will not only be saved, but will also enter into the most intimate union with God and become a divinely built temple of God. A person who practices the gospel's commandments enters into union with God and they become a temple of God. In other words, God comes into the person and then he quotes where Christ says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So Christ says, do you say you love me? Do we say we love God? Then if you love me, then you'll do my commandments. Do we do the commandments? We do it a little bit. That means we love God a little bit. Do we do it a lot? That means we love God a lot. That's why I don't like when people say, I love God. I love God. Do you do all the commandments? Do you do the commandments? And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. From these words, it is evident that the commandments of the gospel must be studied so that they become the possession, the property of the mind. This is what I was saying before. We must read the gospels continually so that we can remember them and become part of our being, completely part of our soul. Only then is the exact constant fulfilment of them possible, such as the Lord requires. If we don't know them, we can't live the commandments. We don't know. It's a sin for someone to say that they're orthodox, that they're Christians, when they don't read the gospel. Of course, the Protestants, they do, to a large extent, read the gospel. But they don't have the Holy Fathers to actually guide them to know how to interpret them, and that's why they've got a million interpretations and millions of groups. We read the Gospels, and we must read them every day. And if we don't, that means that there's something wrong with us. Now, would I go up to a person who doesn't go to church and say to him, you're not reading the Gospels, it means that you're bad, that you're, that you're, um, uh, you're deceived, you're an idiot, or whatever. Would I say that? No, because they don't even say that they're even Christians. Who am I speaking to? I'm speaking to people who are practising, supposedly, orthodox Christians. In other words, I'm speaking to us, to myself, to you people and those who will hear the talks from the CDs things. That's why we don't have time to start. I mean, I mentioned the Benny Hins and all that. We haven't got time to speak about them. Doesn't mean we don't care. We pray, but of course, we pray for these people that God helps them, etc., and may his will be done. But it's hard to pray when we don't even read the gospel, when we don't even have a spiritual life, as we'll see soon. Our prayers don't go anywhere. So even for me to say, oh, we pray for them, what's the point in praying for them, for, the, for these people who are deceived, when we ourselves are deceived in a lot of ways? 
See, that's why, as I said before, these talks are important because that's what's called self-examination. I want the talks to reverse onto us because we're too busy applying what we learn in the church or whatever to other people. We like to look at everyone else but ourselves. That's one of the tricks of the demons. He says, look at everyone else. Judge everyone else, but don't look at yourself. In these talks, with God's help, that's what I try to do. I always try to reverse everything back on us. And by doing that, we actually begin what's called the inner life. Reverse on us. Look at it from what's in us. So I did mention those people, the Born Agains, the Hill songs, only a little bit just to prove a certain point. What's most important? The important thing is, do we read the Gospels every day? Yes or no? If the answer is no, that means that we need to repent, that we are slack, that we don't really care for our soul. Now, someone may ask, are you saying that if someone doesn't read the Gospels every day, it means they don't care for their souls? Simple as yes, according to our saints. How you see people on the internet researching. Some research about properties, about how to, how to make money. And some research about other stupidities that exist, whatever. Could be for their bodies, for something medical. Others research some new technique of losing weight. Others research some other thing about makeup or their hair or some clothes. Others research sports. And on the internet continually, some, a lot of people in, in, in researching these, these things. And the question, of course, is going to say, oh, does that mean it's a sin to, re- to search the internet? Some things are and some things are not. What my point is, is that how come we have time to do that, but we haven't got time to read the gospel? So, reverse always on yourself and you'll find that once you start doing that, the spiritual life will begin. There's more what I want to say. So it says here, the Lord... The Lord reveals himself to the doer of the commandments spiritually, and he is seen with the spiritual eye, with the mind. The person sees the Lord in himself, in his thoughts, feelings, transfigured by the Holy Spirit. A bit deep, but I'll explain. So in other words, when someone starts to do the commandments of the gospel, and it says here that when you do that, it means that you love God. And when you do that, it says here, I will love him, that God in return loves him, and will reveal myself to him, that God will reveal himself to the person who does that. In other words, the person starts to receive the Holy Spirit, to acquire the Holy Spirit slowly. Of course, when we sin, it goes, the Holy Spirit goes away, but in general, we bring the Holy Spirit into us because God has promised that. Christ promised that where he said, if you keep my commandments, do them, it means you love me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. The Holy Trinity comes in the person. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And some people believe that they're going to see God with their physical eyes. That's not what that means. It means that you see God with your spiritual eyes. And that's what Nicholas said the other month. Theosis, I don't know how to say in English, which is the highest form of spirituality, is when the person can see God, they, they are in God and God is in them. And that was attained by some of our saints. It's three levels. Purification, which is where we are, illumination, and theosis. Theosis, I don't know how to say it in English. I don't really fully know properly the... Um, the things like that, because I haven't experienced it, so it's hard for me to explain. I don't like talking about things that I don't really know about. If I do, I'll say, this is from the books. I don't know about it. I, I find it hard. But in general, that's what it means. The saints who reached these high levels is because they read the Gospels and followed the commandments. And if we want to become spiritual in any way, we need to do that. Yeah. Saints are a few... What level, what level was he on? Theosis. Yeah. So he, he, he was, um, the Holy Spirit lived within him. And that's why it's good, we, sh- we should read his conversation with Nicholas, mm, who is it, was it Motolov? Was it? Uh, I can't ever say Russian names. Motolov, how do you say it? Motolov. You said it for me. Um, <laughs> where he spoke there and he actually talked with this person, who was a lay person, and at that time, Saint Seraphim prayed, and this man also acquired the Holy Spirit because of Saint Seraphim, and then they had a whole conversation. That's good for you to read. Talks about everything in there. Saint Ignatius says, "Don't seek to see God with your." sense your, with your eyes, physical eyes. This is clear from the words of the gospel that follow those you have just, we just read before. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come and make our abode with him. Our, our abode is capital O. Who's our? Who's Christ referring to when he says, and make our abode in the person. Our means... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, capital O, that God in Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come and dwell in the person who, as Christ says, if you love me, you keep my commandments, you keep my commandments, then we come and dwell within you. It is evident that the Lord comes to the heart of the person who carries out the commandments and makes his heart a temple and dwelling of God. Um. In this temple, within the person, with his spiritual eyes, obviously, he sees God. He is seen not with the eyes, but with the mind of the soul, which is what they call the nous. But that's another thing. He is seen spiritually. This form of vision is incomprehensible to the beginner, like we all are, and cannot be explained to him in words, except the promise with faith, In due time, you will understand it by blessed experience. We can't, if someone's, as the saints say, if someone's never tasted honey, never tasted honey, 
you can't explain to him what it tastes like. Because honey is a it's got its own thing there. How can you explain if the person's ever he has to experience it? The same as the spiritual life. We can speak about it, but a lot of it we have to base it on faith that that's what God will do. And then when we have that faith and we go ahead with faith, then God will manifest himself to us slowly. But as we go on, we have to be careful that the, that the spirit that comes in us is of God and not of the devil, which can have very similar characteristics because the devil can disguise himself and give us certain things which we can think is the Holy Spirit. And one of them is peace. See, the peace that we said before, it can be demonic, but we can think it's from God. It is evident that the strength which the practice of Christ's commandments wins for the soul can be won by no other means or method. Christ's power acts in his commandments. If we don't do the commandments of Christ, we cannot receive God's grace. That's the struggle, to keep the commandments. We can't just say, okay, now I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to read the commandments, and that's it, I'm going to do them. That's not what it's about. Doing the commandments is lifelong, difficult, struggle. The holy monks of old called the monastic life a life according to the commandments of the gospel. Now, I will add there, the saints in general say that there's no difference really between monastics and lay people because in both cases we have to keep the commandments of the gospel, both cases. There's only some differences which we've mentioned before, married, children, etc. St. John of the Ladder defines a monk thus, a monk is one who is guided only by the commandments of God and the word of God in every time and place and matter. So a monk, or we can change the word monk, we can say a Christian is one who is guided only by the commandments of God. But how do we know the commandments of God if we don't read them? And the word of God in every time and place. So by having the word of God in us, do we remember what we read? Then we begin to practice it. We'll know what to do in situations. We'll remember things. Whoever looks at a woman and lusts in his heart, or whoever looks at a man and lusts in their heart, has committed adultery. That's in the gospel. See, the Ten Commandments, which I made a list there, it says they shall not... The Ten Commandments, they mention that. It just says uh, thou shall not commit adultery which is number seven, thou shalt not kill. But St. John says, if you hate someone, you're a murderer. God's grace cannot be in a person who hates. That's not mentioned in the Ten Commandments. It says if you kill someone physically, if you lust for someone in your heart, you fantasise, you desire, that means you've committed a sin. That's in the Gospel, not in the Ten Commandments. See, the Jews for the first centuries were not able, God did not give to the Jews his higher law because they wouldn't be able to do it. It was a basic thing. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. 
But when Christ came, he gave the inner life. The inner life is what we're going to be emphasising today. So the monks subject to St. Pachomius the Great had to learn the gospel by heart so as to have the laws of the God-man like a continually open book in their memory in order to have them continually before the eyes of the mind for their easier and more unfailing fulfilment. St. Pachomius the Great was a monk in the desert and if someone wanted to come to him to become a monk or to be under him, he said, I want you to learn the Gospels off by heart. Some, some I think, even said you have to learn the, all the Psalms off by heart because the Psalms are really spiritual struggle. But let's stick on the Gospel here. He wanted them to learn the Gospel off by heart because St. Pachomius knew that to be able to keep the commandments of Christ, you have to have, you have to, your mind has to be saturated, one can use, swimming in the law of God in the Gospels. So the Protestants are correct where they say, you know, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, it's correct. But we have our saints that say the same, but know how to apply it. And unfortunately, I come across continually Orthodox Christians who do not read the Gospel much or at all. But I have come across others who read it every day. They say to me, it's like a drug. It becomes like a drug in a good sense. I go, what do you mean? They go, well, I read the daily St. John of Constant calendar, for example, or any calendar. It says the gospel of the day and the epistle of the day. And they read that every day. Just a little section. And they said, it's become part of my system. So I can't miss it. I just got to, I have to do it. It's become like to me, it's, I need it. It gives me something. Yes, it gives you the grace of God. It, it, it enlightens you, etc. Uh, and that way, by knowing, the, by knowing the word of God, we actually then can fulfill it easier because we know it off by heart. The blessed elder seraphim of Sarov, he calls it the blessed elder seraphim. What does he call him, the blessed elder seraphim? Because at the time of St. Ignatius, St. Seraphim had not been canonized as a saint. That's why he calls it the blessed elder, but he knew about him. The blessed elder seraphim, or what we say now, St. Seraphim of Sarov, said, we should so train ourselves that the mind, as it were, swims in the law of the Lord by which we must guide and rule our life. In other words, we've got to train our mind so that we have God's law, that our mind is swimming in God's law. In other words, it's completely absorbed in God's law. Like many people, their mind's absorbed in sport or in the pop culture, in music. Like they say, people say, say to me, oh, you know, um, when I walk along, all the music that I hear comes in my mind. See, because their minds are swimming in their music. Others, they're swimming in their pornography. Depends what they're, what they're focusing on. Others uh, are swimming in their sports. And their fantasy, I don't know, whatever. We all, have our, we all have our madnesses, but we want our minds to be swimming in God's law. By studying the gospel and trying to put its precepts into practice in thought, word and deed, you will be following the Lord's direction and the moral tradition of the Orthodox Church. So that was a little bit on that.
was a little bit, you know, like sometimes when you read these things, I don't like reading. I don't like reading too much because sometimes people can't follow. But I, you know, why I read it? Because if I try to do it myself, I wouldn't be able to do it. It's so, it's so great. I have to read what the saint says to be able to guide me. I don't want to miss. I'm limited, so in this in these things, uh, I needed to read it. But I tried with my best to explain it. This what I what I just read to you is basically a few sections from the first three or four chapters of the arena. Any questions from that section that we just read? Good, nothing. One whose spiritual life involves bodily activities and not the commandments of the gospel, is open to vainglory, pride, and sensuality. So we're going back down. We heard what the saints said about the gospels. We see the importance of them. And if we don't have our spiritual life is not based on the gospel teachings, then, and just on some bodily things, a bit of fasting, not that fasting is not important, but if you think that's just fasting, then that's a bit of a problem. Fasting and some other physical things, as we said, standing, other ascetical things like that. Then we will fall into vainglory, pride, and sensuality. Like, how do you say that? Sensuality is like fleshly, not spiritual. The opposite to spiritual is sensuality. And vainglory means that we love to show off our virtues, supposed virtues, like the Pharisees did in the New Testament, where we read where Christ said that the Pharisee stood in front of the temple, making sure that everyone saw him. And he was doing his prayers, and not crosses, they didn't do crosses, but he was doing his prayers and he was saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like the others, that I do this and do that and do that. And he wanted to be seen. That's what's called vainglory. And you know what? We all have vainglory. We all have vainglory because we're not, our spiritual life has not developed such, you know, even the saints were scared of vainglory and some of them used to fall into vainglory. I remember when I read this particular thing, which I've told you years ago, and when I read that I go, well, if, he, if, if he had it, well, imagine, imagine us, how much vainglory we have. It was a martyr. He was in the arena there and he was being tortured. For being a Christian. And while he was being tortured, he had a thought that when he dies, he will be glorified as a saint and people will sing about him and do hymns about him. And from that, when I read that, I was so shocked and said, well, if he had those thoughts while he was being cut into pieces, then imagine us. So we must look for the vainglory in ourselves which is everywhere, and fight it. If you don't notice your vainglory, it means you're not leading a spiritual life. The more you notice your vainglory, the more you notice the stink of it, the disgustedness of, of this thing within us, the more it means that there's some spiritual life happening there. The greater the Christian's asceticism, bodily asceticism, because it's spiritual asceticism, while neglecting the commandments of the gospel, the greater and more incurable will be the self-opinion that that person has. So when you're just basing yourself on bodily activities and not the commandments of gospel, the inner life, etc., then 
it means that the self-opinion that we have is so great. He deceives himself, trusting vainly and mistakenly to his ascetic labours. He will obtain no spiritual fruit and will gather no spiritual wealth. Now, someone can say, but didn't you just say a minute ago that we all have vainglory? So if we all have vainglory, does that mean that we have no spiritual fruit? The difference is that we can be looking for our vainglory, struggling with it, asking God to rid us and to be repulsed by it, which is a good sign. Be repulsed. Know that vainglory drives out from us God's grace. Yes, it's there, but we fight. We avoid situations not to put ourselves in, in that position. You have the thought to do something to show off. I, I gave some money to the poor. I'm going to say it now so people can say, wow. Then you don't do it. If you do it, then you repent and say, I can't believe it. I lost my gift. As soon as you reveal your virtue to people for vainglorious reasons, we lose the, the gift that God gives us because of our keeping of the commandments, etc. The first sermon of Christ was about repentance. Jesus says he, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. The first word that Christ said in his public ministry, 30 years old, was repent. That's the first word he said. And after his resurrection and before his ascension to heaven, he said, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached. Repentance again as the first word. So, to believe in Christ and to accept Christianity, let's say orthodoxy, obviously, a realisation of one's sinfulness and repentance are necessary. We'll see now something here. To believe in Christ and to accept Christianity, which is what the Protestants say when they say, I was a sinner and now I am saved. I accept Christ as my saviour. And that's what those rallies are. Like Billy Graham came here in the 1980s, whatever it was, and he preached down at the cricket ground, wherever it was, and he was inviting people and said, whoever wants to accept Christ, come here. And he prayed and they accepted Christ and from that they became Christians because they accepted Christ. However, one thing that's very important, which is what the Orthodox Church teaches, unfortunately not practised like it should be, is that for someone to believe in Christ, he comes to Christ, he confesses Christ, but at the same time acknowledging his sinfulness and comes with repentance. That's necessary. It's not enough to say, I believe in Christ, I am saved. For a true conversion, one has to believe in Christ while acknowledging their sinfulness and repenting. Now, converts come to the Orthodox Church, those who are not born Orthodox, they come and they get baptised or some get chrismated or whatever, and... Some are not actually helped, guided to 
come to this realisation of their sinfulness. For them, it's just, I believe in Christ, I want to become orthodox, I get baptised, and that's it. Now, there are what's called cradle orthodox. Cradle orthodox are those who are basically born into orthodoxy. And we apostatize, we go off, we do our lives, and then we come back to the church. And the same thing happens there. We say, I, I now become orthodox, or I now believe in Christ. But what's missing? The realization of one's sinfulness and to have repentance. That is the true sign. See, it's not enough. So what I said to you about two, three talks behind, where I said that a theologian, Father John Romanidi, said that Orthodoxy has become very similar to Protestants. Protestants say that by believing in Christ, that's it. They're saved. They become Christians. And in Orthodoxy, to a large extent, that's how it is. Very similar. But that's not how it should be. It should be that we come to the church in repentance, acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging that we are sick, because then we acknowledge Christ as a saviour, as a doctor, as a healer, as we said before, as a physician. And once one comes back to orthodoxy or is baptised orthodox, having their acknowledgement of their sinfulness, some Protestants do do that. I have to say that some do come and say, I was a sinner and I was bad, and they come in repentance. That's true. Some of them do do that. And then they acknowledge Christ. But later on, this is the difference between orthodoxy and a lot of these Protestants, is that for them it's full stop. They acknowledge that they were sinful if they do. They acknowledge that they had a life without Christ. They might repent to some extent. And that's it, they're saved. But in orthodoxy, there's a difference in that after we are baptised or after we return back to orthodoxy, if we were born into orthodoxy and convert, come back to the orthodox church, we have to continue to acknowledge ourselves as sinful and to repent. Not stop, like the born-agains or whatever they do. They stop. I was a sinner as they hit their tambourines. I was a sinner. But what did the Orthodox say? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Continual, which we will see as we go on. The time is now 7.30. I want to try and keep to schedules because oh, but tomorrow is a public holiday as well. We'll have a break now for about 15 minutes and we will continue on. I noticed that people didn't get up today. I noticed that people aren't... Um, they don't look like they're in, they're in a dentist chair. And the reason being is hopefully that the new chairs with, that we got with God's help are far more comfortable and um, much easier to sit on. And I apologise, ask forgiveness that I used to make jokes about it and say the torture chairs and that, but, you know, I, talking about it, I did want to do something about it, but I didn't know what to buy, what, how to get them until I discovered these ones. These are good because I heard these are used also in the entertainment centre. People sit in lecture theatres. They sit on them for a long period of time. So it's easy because the back's a bit flexible. So that way it should be that you don't go home sick because I actually got some reports that some people actually got sick last time. It's probably why they, they didn't come. So 
I hope that you do find it better and I ask forgiveness for that. It just should have been, something should have been done. But anyway, we worked it out now. So have a break and then we'll come back in 15 minutes, quarter two. On reflection, I might have to say that perhaps my treatment of the born-agains, etc., was perhaps harsh and, um, yeah, I think I was trying to get a point across and it might have crossed over onto putting them down in a way, things like that. And I think we shouldn't put people down unless people are willfully in their deception, etc. And then that, again, is not for us because Christ says that we are not to judge those outside, we judge those from within, meaning we Orthodox will be judged according to our Orthodox faith. The others we leave in God's hands. But I wanted to put a point across, but perhaps maybe my joke or whatever just bordered a bit on um, inappropriateness. So um, I think the saint summarised it well. Woeful, meaning it's pitiful, it's sorrowful that people fall into such deception and we should feel sorry for people and not make fun of their deceptions. And the way we do that is by concentrating on ourselves. right? So I think I feel a bit guilty, so I probably crossed over there a bit somehow. And I ask forgiveness for that, but we just got to be careful. See, that's what happens. When you talk about something, you've got to be very, very careful. But um, let's leave them, not because we don't care about them, but we need to concentrate on ourselves. And as St. Seraphim says, when we've saved ourselves, then thousands will be saved around us. So we've got to fix ourselves up. There are two things which I thought about the other day that... There are two issues I haven't spoken about in proper detail. One is Holy Communion, which I told you last month, that I avoid the topic of Holy Communion. And as I said, that people can think that I'm against people communing or communing frequently. And I'm not, actually. I believe that Orthodox Christians should commune every liturgy. That's what I believe. That's what I try to cultivate. I haven't spoken much about it in these talks. The other topic that I haven't spoken much about is children, the upbringing of children. People have been saying, when are you going to do the talk on the upbringing of children? And if every time I go to prepare or try to, to program a talk to say, I'm going to do that talk, it just doesn't work out. Something tells me not to do it. And I've often thought, why? And the reason being is the following. The upbringing of children... The prerequisite for the upbringing of children is that people are leading struggling orthodox lives. Struggling. If, as we've heard today, that people aren't even basing their life on the gospel, they're not repenting, etc., how then can I speak to people about the upbringing of children? It's not going to work. The upbringing of children needs a person to be practising spiritual life. Then they'll understand the advice that the saints give us about the children. If they're not living that life, you can't do it. That's why I avoid it for the time being. I want to build up. Holy communion is the same thing. To get to the stage where a person is communing, we want the person to commune, yes. We want the person to commune often, yes. But if they are leading 
struggling orthodox lives, like we heard in the previous talk, that people are actually struggling with their passions and not just communion. That's why I avoid those two topics. Now today, this topic is actually shedding a lot of light on spiritual life. And we have to do this for a while and then we'll come to the stage with God's help that we start to talk about those topics. And personally, from my experience, is that a lot of people do not lead spiritual lives. Even if they go to church and even if they commune and even if they confess and even if they pray, they're not leading what St. Ignatius says, which is got the icon in front. They're not leading the inner life and they're not leading a life based on the gospel. And if that's not happening, then it's all a waste. So that's why my first 20, you know, 20 took me around 25 talks to get to that stage. Even I did speak about that here and there, but now I'm speaking more in detail. Now, the children of God lead a life according to the commandments of the gospel. St. John in his epistle actually refers to Christians as children of God. And he calls children of God those who lead a life according to the commandments of the gospel. And they offer repentance for their slips and falls. If a servant of God, for some unfortunate reason, happens to fall into a big sin, a mortal sin, something which obstructs him from holy communion, abortion, murder, fornication, adultery, there's other uh, things we should one day get the book St. Nicodemus wrote and read some of the lists which are the things which obstruct someone, the other serious sins. If someone is to fall into that, which happens at times, he is healed of the wound of sin by repentance and confession and therefore he does not cease to be a child of God because St. John in his epistle actually says that those who sin are children of the devil. And when people read that, and I remember when I first read it years ago, I go, oh, are we all children of the devil? Because we all sin. Why does St. John, who is the disciple of love, like he was the most loved disciple of Christ, and his epistles, we call them the epistles of love. At the end he just says love. And, of course, to get to that stage, he obviously... Um, struggled and I used to get confused and people have said that they get confused well that means we are all children of the devil and he says here what does the children of the devil mean it means those who lead a sinful life out of love for it who readily fall into sin that comes their way and who admit that they enjoy it they love it in a life of immorality in its various forms and everything to do with breaking the gospel, the gospel's commandments. A person who does not care, a person says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop my, my, my sinful life, I like it. That's who St. John calls children of the devil. And St. Ignatius says, and even though they may take part in church services, like they come out every so often, Easter for Pascha, Christmas, and even though they go and do malebans or slavas, etc., and even though they partake even of the mysteries, or they go to psychologically relieve themselves a little bit by confessing a few things, just in case there's a life after, 
but they don't really believe there's a life after, but just in case, he says that's all to their condemnation. It doesn't help them. So to be true children of God doesn't mean to be sinless. It means that we sin, repent, confess, while others that are what, called, what St. John calls children of the devil, they sin, they don't repent, they love it, etc., etc. St. Ignatius says, goes on and says, constant lack of repentance is a sign of a completely wrong attitude or outlook. If we don't feel repentant, not just guilty, repentant, coming from within. What's repentant? It comes from the Greek word metanois, which means change of life, where you say, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to do that. I'm going to change my life. And you make attempts to change it, to stop the sin that that we are doing. If a person has that lack of repentance, then it means something's not right in the spiritual life. That's an indication. Not whether you've given you know, a lot of money to the poor or whether you've kept just the fast or whether you do long prayers or whether you commune often or whether you even confess often externally or whatever. Standing in church, reading, all those things have no value unless you have repentance. A Christian, the saint goes on, should be constantly filled to overflowing with a sense of repentance. A true spiritual life is a person who repents. Do we hear the word much now? No. I've heard priests say, oh, I'm really happy, I'm really happy. Uh, so many of my Christians... Uh, to the, uh, they communed, I've said this before, or so many of the Christians now keep the fast. Oh, I'm really happy with that. How about repentance? No answer. This sense of repentance should be stirred and aroused every time a Christian prays, especially when a Christian prays. So when we go to do our prayers, we pray, we read the prayer book, we do prayer rope, which we have a new leaflet today. Did that come? I printed out a, a leaflet on the Jesus Prayer for people in the world, and that's there. And also I've got another leaflet there on um, how to greet clergy, how to write to clergy, how to get blessings and things like that. I, for some of you who don't know, that's there. Um, so what we're saying was that, especially in prayer, because during prayer is when we come into communion with God. That's where we hope that God especially grants us his grace because to, that we pull down the grace of God into our hearts when we are praying and, of course, when we do the gospel teachings. If we are praying and we do not feel repentant, that means that something's wrong. That is the most important thing to look at. Not whether you feel peaceful like the gurus. Not whether you have, um, where you are counting your good deeds or whatever. Or you're being distracted at the time. Uh, the true prayer is one where we are repentant. But people look for other things. 
People don't think about repentance as being what's the basis. If we have repentance, that's the most important thing. God wants repentance, especially in the beginning of our spiritual life. Only with repentance can one's prayer ascend to God. If we don't have repentance, we're not going to have our prayers answered. And if by chance sometimes they are answered, there might be special reasons for that. But in general, our prayers are only satisfying, in, if you can use that word, when we have repentance. A Christian's whole conduct and behaviour should be filled with this sense of repentance. That's it. Christianity equals repentance. That's why when Alexis said about the preparation, not that you meant that, but I don't really know what you meant, but by saying this I'm not putting you down, but it was good that you said it because it sparked something off, which was beneficial for you, because from that people will get benefit. And what it is that when he said to prepare for communion, to prepare for communion, we commune, we prepare. So what's this preparation? Yes, we do have to fast. Yes, we do have to do our prayers. But the preparation for communion is not just at that time of those things. The preparation for communion is constant repentance, which leads us to communion. So we, we are, we, our everyday lives is repentance, communion, repentance, communion, it's right through our life, not just a psychologically forced repentance if we think, oh, I've heard that we have to repent before we commune. So I'll go to confession and then I'll force some things out. And someone asked me last week, which is a very good question, they said, when I go to confession, if something, something I feel guilty about but I don't say it but I say everything else, what happens? I go, according to St Nicodemus, if you say 99 sins but you leave one of them out and you know you've left it out, the other 99 are not forgiven. Now why am I saying that? Is to see that it's that particular one which is the one that we need to say but if we can't say it, it means that we haven't repented properly, we haven't actually asked God to help us to repent of it and to be able to say it. But we go, you know, we say, like, slap Harry, just go and confess. Don't do that. If you don't, it's happened to me too. I have to admit that sometimes I, there's a certain thing that I've got which I don't feel that I want to say or I can't say or whatever reason. So what do I do? I wait. I won't go to confession. I will wait until I Ask God to help me to say it. That's what you should all do. That's what I've read. I don't mind my idea. That's what I've read. That's what the church fathers teach. Don't go. Oh, but it's Pascha. We have to commune for Pascha, but I just can't say it. So I'll go and say the rest and then I'll commune. Don't do it. It doesn't matter. Miss out on Pascha. Sit, stand, whatever. In church, and as you're watching people commune, you put yourself down and say, I missed out because I did not confess my sin and what happens then that will put you down that's why it's good to abstain from communion a lot of times it's it's good it actually does good 
to watch everyone else to commune and you don't. Blame yourself. And then maybe that will knock some sense into us and then we go and confess. There's no need to, that. We don't have to go and say, oh, it's my name day. I have to go and commune because it's my name day. Or it's my mother's 40 days. I have to go and commune. What for? It's not going to help your mother. Repentance helps your mother. If you repent and you, and you have a change of life, yes. But when we go to confess, we confess everything. Christians' whole conduct and behaviour should be filled with a sense of repentance. See, whole conduct. Whole conduct. What does that mean? Not just when we go to our prayer corners. Not when we just go to church. Not when we just come to a talk. Not when we just read spiritual books. But what it's saying here is a Christian's whole conduct and behaviour should be filled with that repentance. Now... Some of you say, does that mean when I'm at work, I repent? Does that mean when I'm in the train, do I repent? Etc. I know people that actually, yes, they just they could be in the train and then they're sitting there and then suddenly they think about something that happened at work, like they judged someone or they did something else that was bad, cheated the boss's time, bludged, slandered someone. could be anything. And then when the person talked too much, said something dirty, laughed at something that was someone said an inappropriate joke, made an inappropriate joke, it could be a lot of things. And the person says that they're going home in their car and the train, and all of a sudden they remember what they did because when, when we sin, a lot of times we're out of it and blind. But when we come to our sense of history, when we're quiet, when we're on our own, even in a train which could be noisy, but on your own when you start to think, and all of a sudden... Tears come out of the person and say, I, you know, and then you have repent. And that's what we say, repentance. Asking God to forgive us for being so sinful and bad, etc., etc. So, yes, repentance can come all the time. That especially comes when someone is leading a, a spiritual life continually. Their whole life is a spiritual life. So you say, well, how can you be doing a spiritual life at work? I just said it. Your spiritual life at work or at school or at home or whatever is spiritual because you're watching out. How do you talk to someone? Are you judging the other person? Do you bag someone behind their back? Do you slander someone? Everything is spiritual struggle. Now, some say that's very tiring. You know what? I would have to say that worldly life is much more tiring and fruitless. When worldly people come to me and they say, um, and I went out, and they, oh, they might say, oh, I watched um, five DVDs and I went out or I went to the dance or I went out drinking or I went here and I went to a party and I went there and here and everywhere. And then how do you feel? Dead, dead, empty, depressed, tired, anxious, sick, mental, out of it. And I said to them, you don't sound like you're a very happy person with all what you're saying. Now, let's look at a person who lives a life in the church, a person struggling. Because whether you're a worldly person or a person in the church, you're still struggling. The worldly people struggle too. They struggle that people don't know their faults. They struggle how they're going to socialise. They struggle how do they talk to the opposite sex. 
they'd struggle about um, uh, when they're in a group, how they're going to relate with each other. They struggle this, they struggle, I don't know, they struggle with everything. So they're a mess. And a Christian is struggling and it's tiring, but it says, what is, how does Christ say it? Learn from me for my burden is uh, light and easy, something like that, which means, yes, it can be difficult, but then when God sees your struggles, he also gives grace. As we said before, when, when you keep the commandments of Christ, then God helps us, gives us grace. And as St. John of Cronstein says, what comes out of that? Joy, spiritual joy. Forms like we start to have sparks of humility. Humility means if someone puts us down, we're not going to go home. Oh, that's, that's another thing that worldly people do. If someone puts them down or things like that, they just go home and think about it and think about revenge and they become ripped. Ripped. They worry about their weight, they worry about their face, they worry about their bodies, they worry about their hair, they worry about everything. I find that tiring, even now just thinking about it. I feel like I'm going to fall down on the ground from tiredness just thinking about it. I should know because I went through that as well. But the point is that some of you still going through that. So don't say, oh, but spiritual life sounds so tiring. Yes, tiring but fruitful. Worldly life's tiring as well. Like women who try to make it high up and I don't know what they're going for to try and prove that they're men. I don't know, do they have to do a sex education lesson to find out that there is still a difference between a man and a woman, physical at least. So they're trying to do this, and now the guys are trying to prove themselves. It's tiring, very tiring, and fruitless, pointless, worthless, empty, sickening, depressing, etc. Was that tiring for you? I feel very tired, actually, and that's not a joke. They say that, yeah, they say, oh, you know, you stand in church for all those hours. And what the person in front, he was saying that they also stand in their, their, whatever they do. They stand when they go to their dances. They stand when they line up to get tickets to go to some concert. They stand up. And, you talk, and we talk about these chairs, the previous ones being torture chairs. How about those women that wear those high heels, Right? They're like when you read the lives of saints and they say that they got the saint and put them some type of shoe onto them which was like, I don't know, that's like a horrible shoe where they nailed it onto the person and then made the person walk with them and was excruciating pain. Now, these women, I don't know if they're secret, secret saints or whatever they are, but they put on these high heels which they can barely walk. Their calf muscles are um, like really stiff and they walk in with heels about that big and you know like sometimes you think are they actually disabled the way that they're walking that's torment that's torture but they do it because women don't go around without high heels men do other things too wear inappropriate clothing which is unhealthy enough of that i think god accepts only one sacrifice repentance other sacrifices, even the strictest asceticism, are rejected by God as being defiled by sin. 
because of the fallen nature and needing purification by repentance. I actually photocopied for myself Psalm 50. Psalm 50, where have mercy on me, O God, according to thy great mercy. And it says here towards the end, a sacrifice unto God is a broken spirit, a heart that is broken and humbled, God will not despise. The Jews believed that God was satisfied when they would do their burnt offerings. You know, they would get animals and cut them up in certain ways and offer sacrifice. That was part of the law. Moses' law, I don't know much about the Old Testament, but along those lines. And they began to believe that that was it. But Prophet David comes along and in his Psalms, he says the true sacrifice for God is a contrite and humble heart, a repentant heart. That's the most important thing. Then God is happy with the other sacrifices. For the Jews, it would be when they would offer their animals, whether it's pigeons or goats, whatever they did. And we also offer God sacrifices. What do we do? We fast. We spend our time doing the commandments. We can go out and visit people, visit sick people. We stand in church. We go on Sunday to church. We read the gospel. We spend our time. Instead of watching TV, we actually sit down and read the Bible. But these sacrifices are only worthwhile if they are offered in repentance, is what the prophet David is saying. Without repentance, then what we're offering stinks. It stinks because it's full of pride. Because of our fallen nature, whatever we do, we tend to do things out of pride. Whatever we do. When we fast, we get proud. When we go to church, we can get proud. When we commune, we get proud. When we confess, we get proud. When we read, we want to preach to people that we know things. All the time, everything's proud. And we believe that God is happy with those things. Yes, when our life is sprinkled, as we said before, right through with a sense of repentance, a broken and humbled heart, God will not despise. Humbled, broken, means I think it means contrite, repentant, sorrowful, pained. All the great holy fathers of our Orthodox Church admitted that repentance was their sole occupation. That was their main occupation. That's what they struggled to achieve, repentance. For example, San Asenius the Great had repentance as his constant occupation. And because of this gift of tears that he had, he had to have a handkerchief on his lap because when, whatever he would do in working and things like that, he would be shedding tears continually of repentance. And hence, St. Asenius the Great. You know, we read Lives of Saints. Some, of, some people we read. I remember when I used to read the Lives of Saints and I used to become quite, um, you know, I used to look at, oh, look, the clairvoyance there or that saint did that miracle or that saint helped that person. You know, and we look at those things, but we don't really look at the, the, the common thread in all the Lives of Saints was that the saints led a life of repentance. That was their main thing. We always tend to go, because you know, of our TV background and marvellous things and superheroes and all that, we always like to look at the marvellous. 
at the astounding things, which has a purpose. Christ used miracles to bring people to him. But when he brought them to him, like he brought the Samaritan woman, give me some water, and she says, why are you speaking to me if I'm a Samaritan? And then he's been on about, well, if you knew who he was speaking to you in the living water. And then he says, you have not one husband, but you've had five. All of a sudden, she was amazed. Oh, he knows my life. So he used that, the clairvoyance, which the saints used as well. We read in Elder Porfirios, he used his clairvoyance to bring. He ever actually said it. When they come to me, I will use the gift that God has given me, the clairvoyance, to make them uh, amazed. And from that then, I bring them closer to God. That's what Christ did. And then after that, he began his conversation with her on the spiritual, which led to her repenting and becoming Saint Fortigny of, that's the Samaritan woman. She actually became a saint of the Orthodox Church. Fortigny meaning light, force, light which I think in uh, Sir, uh, Slav, Slavonic is, um, was it, Slat? Svetlana, I think that means light or something like that. So comes from the word, yeah, light. And Saint Sinsorus the Great asked the angels who came to take his soul from his body, because he was dying, and the angels came to take his soul, and he said to them to give him time, not to take him, because he wanted to repent. He said to his disciples that he did not know whether he had really begun to repent. And I read last night something which was quite amazing. If you read the complete account of that part, then the angels did take him and he shone with light and he was taken and because you know, he was such a great saint, so he had repentance. Why but did he say, I don't know that if I've really begun to repent? Was he saying that as like humility? No. Humility where we're just saying something but we believe that we are something else, is, that stinks as well. Why he said it is because, uh, I don't know where I read it, but it said, in all the virtues we can obtain the virtue of purity, we can have, have attain the virtues like of um, um, humility, and we can kind of come to what we call a, uh, we are perfected in it, we've come to that virtue. But repentance is the only thing which just goes on and on and on. And the more the person repents, the more they feel that they haven't repented and they need more to repent, etc. It's ongoing, different to the other virtues. And that's why he said that. Give me more time to repent. But his whole life was repentance. But that's that special thing about it. Repentance does not end. A Christian repents continually, while the other saints, it says, the saint had reached um, certain uh, virtues and he'd reached those virtues, he got those gifts, but not with repentance. It just goes on and on and on. Those who have acquired a true spiritual understanding of repentance, included in all their labours, prayers and fasting, and consider it a day lost when they have not wept over themselves. Whatever other good works they have done on that day. Now, what does that say? Just in case some of you don't like being read to, it might remind you of school days. Some people like that. Some people that started school early or had problems when they were at school. I've noticed that it's a learning problem whereby uh, 
kids that went early, as I said, or they had problems, when the teacher starts to explain something, they used to block off. They couldn't understand either because, as I said, they were too young or they had all emotional problems. And, and what happens is that those people, when they grow up, and even though they become adults, when someone tries to explain something to them, it brings back memories of when they were at school and they kind of block off. They become blurred. It takes them a while to register what you're saying. It's a learning difficulty. See, when I became a teacher, I did maths teaching, but one of my other specialties, which I loved, was teaching the adolescent slow learner. So we are a product of our upbringing. We've got problems, but it doesn't mean that we can't be saved because we've got problems from our childhood. We just have to be humble about it, and instead of hiding it, to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Instead of going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, did you understand? Yep, I understand, yep, understand, understand. When they didn't understand anything. What's wrong with saying, I didn't understand? Instead of hiding it. So people hide things all the time. Make things worse. I do it sometimes too. I said, do you understand? You just, oh, yeah, yeah, it's like a habit because that's probably what I used to do when I was young. And, um, and then you've got to say, no, 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 sorry, no, I didn't understand. Can you please explain that again? can also come from parents when parents try to discipline their children young and tell their children off. Like I was speaking to one person who had a little two-year-old child and, and he said to me that um, he punishes the child because the child doesn't listen to him. I go, what does a child know at two years old? Go, but I, you know, he does know because when he goes to turn on the television, he looks at me so he knows he's doing wrong. He doesn't know you do. He doesn't understand right and wrong. So when we get the child and you start talking to it and as it grows up more and you start to, and the child doesn't understand, when that child grows up, it's just going to have problems when a person speaks to it because you've conditioned the child to block off because it never could understand it in the first place. So you, we create a lot of problems anyway. That's things that we need to do later on. So why did I bring that up for? Uh, it said that, I don't know why I brought that up. But in, Oh, yeah, that's right. We, um, we said that. So uh, it was good. They usually I go off topic sometimes. Today I haven't gone off topic much. That was my first one, and now I've lost my train. It doesn't matter. All things are for reasons anyway, but I think a lot of, lot of us have that problem, and it, by me explaining, I think it helps you to understand. Don't be intimidated by problems that you find in yourself. Be more open and you'd be more comfortable instead of hiding things, not letting people know what's going on. You know, it's just not worth it. it. causes anxiety and problems and scared and fear and things like that. So, it says here that the saints of our Orthodox Church had as their constant occupation this thing about repentance. That was their main job, to cultivate to have repentance. And if they didn't repent in the day, they used to feel that was bad for them, not to have repentance. That's what I was trying to say before. We go to our prayers and we pray and we don't feel repentant, then we should be disappointed in saying that something's not right, which we hear later on what St Ignatius says. It means that we've got incorrect spiritual life. And St John of Cronstant says that when you... Uh, can't repent, read Psalm 50, which is what I was reading before. Psalm 50, have mercy on us. Read it, 
Try and feel it. Concentrate on it. And if you still don't repent, then read it again and again. And if you still can't, then repent that you can't repent. A lot of the saints actually say that. Repent that you can't repent. Say to God, forgive me, I can't repent. Help me to repent. And it doesn't matter what they did during the day, all their good works, if they never had repentance, they didn't feel it. That's why their good works were not important to them. What was important is, did they, do they see their sins? Are they repentant? If they had that, then they would be more satisfied, or we shouldn't say self-satisfied, we should say they would be more, uh, they would feel more safe. They would, be, they would be able to obtain God's grace. But if they didn't have it, they can give their body to be burnt, as St. Paul says, they can speak with tongues, they can do all miracles, but it says if they don't have love, then it's nothing. But love only comes if we have repentance. So yes, St. Paul speaks about love, but the prerequisite, the, the background of love is repentance. When you hear people who say, I have love, but they don't have repentance, that's full deception. That's why I detest, I don't like when people say, I love God. I love people. How about repentance? Repentance? What language is that? The Holy Scriptures and the Holy Father say, weep because there is no other way to salvation. When I was reading Elder Porfirios, which I thank you because you gave me the opportunity to, you know, I... I I would have read it, but you know, when, you, when you're reading as well and you've got to present it, sometimes you've got to be a bit careful. Um, same thing when you teach, actually, when, you've got to, when you can read something, but when you've got to teach it, you have to know it. You've got to penetrate more. When I was reading Elder Porfirios, there was a section there, because Elder Porfirios was always love and love and love and love, he had the Holy Spirit. And one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is love, humility, etc. And people were writing down what he said. I don't think he actually wrote, but these books that are written about his words were written by his disciples, whether they taped him or remembered what he said. And there was one sentence which caught me in the book, I think it was Wounded by Love. Is that what it's called, Wounded by Love? Yeah, Wounded by Love. And when I read I go, oh, this is, com- this is really... Something that I, you know, it was strict. It was harsh. Compared to everything else they wrote about him, which was always, you know, love and love and love. And what did he say? He said, without repentance, there is no salvation. If I remember right, he says, do you hear me? He means he was emphasising it. Without repentance, there is no salvation. That was, I would have to say, one of the most, well, for me anyway, what I noticed was one of the most, I haven't read the whole book, but I read a lot of his other books, and that was the strictest thing that I actually heard him say. Remember, he was always forgiving and always merciful and things like that, but he said the truth, and that's the truth, and this is the common thread in all of Orthodox spirituality. And let's... Realize it. Without repentance, we can't be saved.
That's harsh. Yes. So let's see it again. The Holy Scriptures and the Holy Fathers said, weep because there is no other way to salvation. Now, some have said to me, are you saying when you say weep, does that mean we have to have tears? When you start off, might not have tears. Maybe that might come. But the point is to have a contrite and humble heart. And if God feels that the tears are necessary, not necessary, are beneficial, because some people can actually have them and think that they're a saint, lose themselves and become demonic. What's important is to see yourself as sinful and to have repentance. But I will go on with that. Insensibility, which means for a person who's unfeeling, numb, unconscious in the spiritual life. Insensibility, painlessness, there's no pain in the heart, and or deadening of the soul is due to the loss of the sense of repentance and contrition. So this is going to be the theme of the talk. The title of this talk is going to be How Do We Overcome Spirit, what is it? Spiritual Deadness and Coldness, something like that, in spiritual life. That's going to be the name of this talk, which I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, that people have that as complaints. Some people do feel that, which is good. At least they can see that, unlike others who don't feel it and believe that they're spiritual, or they're just leading spiritual lives, sorry, they're leading sinful lives, and they don't care whether they're dead or not. It makes no difference to them. But you know what? When they get into relationships, when they get married, and they begin to see that they're cold towards their children and cold towards their wives or husbands, etc., and they begin, that's a lot of times the cause of divorces. But there's no communications. and That's true. But the main thing is where people say, I don't love you anymore. Um... You know, you never did. There was never love there in the first place. How can you say, oh, I used to love the person, but now I don't love that person anymore? In the beginning, it was emotional, deceptive, sexual, I don't know, whatever. But true love develops, grows. People who are selfish, people not practising the commandments, People who aren't asking God to soften their hearts aren't going to get it. So they might think it's not important, but it does affect their relationships. And a lot of people, when you really get down to the itty-gritty, as we say, the main reason for divorce is the fact that there's just a lack of love. Because what do we hear? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what St. Paul says. The fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what a Christian gets when he does the commandments, when he repents, etc., when God's grace comes in the person, they begin to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, See, how can a wife put her husband down? How can the husband put the wife down? Because there's no gentleness, there's no patience, there's no goodness, there's no faithfulness. Faithfulness can be in a lot of things, but one of them is that people are unfaithful to their spouse and go with others. Gentleness, when you see a fault in your spouse, to be gentle with them. Self-control, when you feel like ripping the other person apart to tell them off, to have some self-control. When you feel like saying someone's fault, to have some self-control. And many other things are self-control. Against 
Such there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, that, that means the sinful nature, with its passions and desires. So if we want to belong to Christ, there it is. We have to crucify the flesh. What does that mean? To struggle against the passions. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The way to attain compunction is an attentive life. That is, leading a true spiritual life in the fullest sense. And what does that mean? Obviously, baptised, being orthodox, keeping the commandments. Yes, you can keep the Ten Commandments, but that's not all. Struggling with the passions, especially with our selfishness, our vainglory, our lust, our laziness, our slothfulness, whatever that is, ignorance. Where we're ignorant, we don't want to know about what's good for our salvation. Ignorance is a sin. Coldness or insensibility, neglect. Partaking of the mysteries, yes, confession, Holy Communion, you know, partaking of holy water, unction services, paraclesis like we did today, all these things are useful when we are leading a spiritual life. If we're not leading a spiritual life, then what's the point in having holy water? That's why when we have holy water in the morning, we have it after we have done prayers, after you have cultivated that spiritual where you praying, have repented to some extent, have thanked God, and all whatever we do in our prayers, then after we finish them with prostrations, read the gospel, then we partake of the holy water. Then from the holy water we get, as it says in the service, protection, sanctification, forgiveness of sins, because holy water also gives forgiveness of sins. Which sins? Our everyday sins. We don't go and run to a spiritual father for every single sin that we do. We do so many sins every day, but these are not sins that need confession. It's everyday sins, which we'll read that when we come to the prayers. Holy water, holy bread that we get from the church, we can take some home with us and have that during the week. Andidoro, I don't know how to say it in English, Andidoro, I'm not sure. It means instead of the gift. For those who didn't partake of, the holy, of holy Communion, they get this holy bread instead of the gift. The gift meaning the, bread, the body and blood of Christ. Andi, instead. Voro, gift, instead of the gifts. A holy unction, which we're going to, with God's help, we're going to do in December. That is, the, what's the prerequisite for holy unction? Obviously to be orthodox, but that's not enough. To be a struggling orthodox Christian, one who repents, one who tries to, to struggle with the passions, one who is trying to do the commandments of Christ, then unction has a place. The Holy Fathers say, if you are without compunction, know this. If you are without compunction, that means that our heart has not been softened by our repentance to God, our pain that we have sinned. Know this, that you have vainglory. For it does not allow the soul to come to compunction. In other words, sorrow for one's sins. If we can't repent, that means that we are being overtaken by vainglory. Externals. See the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The publican was very sinful, like us. But when he went... And he went to the side of the temple where no one could see him, just stood over to the side. 
and was beating his chest and was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. While the, the Pharisee, what was the main characteristic of the Pharisees? Christ said it. You love to wear your robes and you love to be, salute, uh, to be greeted in the marketplace and be called far, a rabbi, whatever they call them, and all these things. And Christ said it. You love the praise of men more than the praise of God. For God to be happy with you, but no, you want men, man, human, other people to be happy with you. It's vainglory to be showing off. And that's why that parable of the Pharisee and the publican is very important. Some of you may have never read it. And if you've never read it, it's just not right. So vainglory, which I said all of us do suffer from, some more, some less, and our job should be to detect it in ourselves, eliminate it, repent of it, struggle. Then, if you are doing that, then slowly, slowly God will give repentance. If you prefer the praise of men more, then, as Christ said, you have received your reward. You've got your reward. You've got the praise of men, but there'll be no reward in the next life. So if we are struggling to be praised by other human beings, then there is no reward in the next life. We've received it now. Self-opinion and self-satisfaction go together with insensibility. When we're dead in our souls, in our hearts, when we can't repent, in other words, when we don't see our sins, this is because we have self-opinion and we have got this what's called self-satisfaction. We're satisfied with ourselves that we're good, good Christians, whatever, and we, our opinion is as if God has spoken. That's self-opinion. When someone comes to the church or I've been in the church for years and you try to speak to them as I do as a priest and other priests would have noticed the same, and they have a self-opinion, like they just, you, they don't even listen. Like you're a priest, you're speaking to them, and it's like, yep, 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 just talking about the, what they believe. They don't listen. To me, that's shaking material. I'm shaking because, to me, that person's in danger. It really frightens me when I see a person in that state because, as we'll see as time goes on, the consequences of this, self-deception and pride. So we have self-opinion, we have self-satisfaction. Let's do like a, like a mathematical equation. Self-opinion plus self-satisfaction equals what? Insensibility. And that gives, we use the arrows like in chemistry, it gives self-deception and pride. It leads a person into self-deception and pride, self-deception. In other words, they put themselves into deception and it brings them to pride. And what's the worst sin? Pride. What made the angels fall from heaven? Pride. Why did Adam and Eve lose paradise? Pride. What's the opposite to pride? Yes, what's the opposite? Humility. And how do we get humility? We have to have something before humility. Humility doesn't come like that. It comes from... Repentance. So this is enough to cause the loss of all spiritual griefs that a person obtains from God in baptism 
Or if a person repents and comes to the church like the prodigal son, where it says, come and he is now, you know, he was lost, but now he is found. And, and then the, the father, which represents God, says to his servants, bring him beautiful clothing and a ring, etc., etc. And all that means to obtain the gifts of the Holy Spirit again. Give him the gifts of the Holy Spirit because of his repentance, because of his uh, humility. But if a person does not cultivate and keep on in their spiritual life, repentance, etc., then they lose those gifts that God gives to his children. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we said, joy, love, peace, patience, long-suffering, um, goodness, all those things are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's why when we read the lives of saints, we see those gifts in those saints. We see those gifts in those saints. How much love they had and the joy that they had where Saint Seraphim would would greet people and say, Christ is risen, because he was full of joy even when it wasn't the Paschal period. And the humility that they had, the enlightenment that they had, the peace that they had, these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we can experience that to some extent depending on our struggle and depending on our repentance, obviously. But when we sin, we lose. And how do we get it back? When God as St. John of Cronston says, when we repent, then God washes away our sins and then we, if they're big sins, obviously you've got to go and confess, and then God grants back his gifts according to a person, how much they can take. Some people cannot obtain these gifts in an obvious way because they will fall into pride. But God has his ways with everyone being that he's a physician, being that he's a doctor, being that he's a healer. He knows exactly what to do with each person and he enlightens the spiritual father, if the spiritual father has fear of God and humility, to know what type of treatment to apply to each of his spiritual children. This is enough to cause the loss of all the gifts, spiritual gifts, and even one's soul. So St. Ignatius says that when we have this self-opinion, when we're satisfied with ourselves, which leads to this insensibility, this deadness, having no sense of your sin, nothing, no repentance, thinking that you're great, this will lead to self-deception and pride. And because of that, you lose the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, you can lose your soul. That's why I begin to tremble. I tremble if I sit in myself. I tremble if I sit and if I don't see it in myself, that's when we pray to God in when we're in a better spiritual state, we ask God to protect us from such things so that when we do sometimes lose ourselves or become blinded, that God remembers those prayers that we did. And we, you know, like sometimes people come to me and they say they had certain experiences. And then I, I say to them, uh, did you ever pray for certain things, and they said, oh, no, 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 no. I go, no, even a long time ago, did you ever go to a holy icon? Did you ever go to a monastery or to the relics of a saint or whatever? Did you ever make certain prayers in front of those things? They go, oh, yeah, I once 
said this, this. I go, well, that's the result. It might not come straight away. It might come one month, two months, one month, three years, four years. But God remembers everything. God is maybe, as we think, slow to act, but he never forgets. He's slow to act, not that he's slow, but because he knows when is the best time to give us the correct medicine or whatever we've asked for, etc. A worldly example, which I thought about the other day, just to see that God does listen to prayers, even if they're not done maybe in the, in the proper way at times, depends on the person's faith. There was this man and he had this thing that he didn't want to die uh, in bed. He didn't want to have a death where he'll be in the bed, like sick and things like that. He wanted to die while still being on his feet in a sense, not in bed. He didn't want to. Of course, such a prayer is not good because sometimes, you know, when we're sick in bed for periods of time, that actually cleanses us and prepares us for the next life. Anyway, but he did say that. And just to show you that we've got to be careful what we pray for because a lot of times we can still get them if you did it with a lot of faith. He obviously did have did it with a lot of faith. Maybe wrongly, but he did it. And what happened to him? He was cutting the grass. And his wife noticed that he was in the backyard kneeling down with his head down, kneeling on his, on his knees. And she thought, why is he doing that? And the lawnmower was still going. What's happening there? And she went up to him only to find that he had a heart attack and he was dead. So what he wanted, he got. He didn't want to die lying down and God gave him that. Sometimes we think that God ignores us, but he does at times give us things if we are obsessed about it and we really want it, he might say, that's what you want, have it. Remember the example in the Old Testament where the Jews were asking for a king and God said to them, I'm your king, you don't need, if I remember right, you know, no, and they said, no, no, we want a king like all our other neighbours around in other countries. They had a king and we want a king as well. And even though God said to them, no, that's not good for you people, they persisted in that, and what happened was he gave him a king. He gave him Saul. But he didn't want to give him a king. So I'm just trying to show you there that that's an example of, yes, that God sometimes does give us what we want, even when it might not be good for us. Now, as for this person that died like that, I'm just saying, when his wife told me that, she said to me, he always said that he doesn't want and he prayed that he did not want to die in bed, up in a sickness. So he was, he was actually upwards. And he was just there, on his knees, head down, dead. Didn't fall over, actually. People, sometimes parents, pray for their children to become something, which might not be good for them to become. They might say, I want my son to be, you know, a solicitor or something. I don't know, let's just, let's just make something up. And then, you know, they don't ask if it's your will, if this is good for him, then bring it. But no, I want him to be a solicitor. All that's missing is the person bashing their head on the wall. I want him to be a solicitor. And he becomes a solicitor and at the end goes to jail for some corruption. 
or some other problem. Parents who, you know, other things as well, whatever we ask for. Remember that example that I said of that couple? Sorry, it was a man and a woman. They couldn't have children and they just became obsessed. And they were just praying to God, grant us a child, grant us a child, grant us a child, grant us a child, continually. Grant us a child. And they got it. The woman became pregnant, they had the child. And after some time, the wife died. And the man remarried. And as you remember the story, some of you, some of you knew. And the, the man married. So this woman became a stepmother. And then the father came home and discovered something which was inappropriate. And he killed his son, the son that he asked for. And she divorced him. He went to jail. And while he was in jail, he was saying, you know, what we ask for something, but we shouldn't have asked for. And some people can say, well, does that mean we shouldn't ask for children if we're not kind? And I've said this before. Who remembers what's the secret? You can ask, but what's the secret? Grant me a child. That's okay. They wanted a child. What's the, what's the thing that they left out? I will. Thy will be done. I grant me a child if it's your will. If it's good for me, grant me a child. If it's good for my son to become a solicitor, just say, let it happen. If it's your will, if it's good for them. But we forget that. So these people were saying, grant a child, grant a child, grant a child, and look what happened. So killed his own son, lost the second wife, etc. It's a horrible example that, but um, but very important. As I said, one person wanted to become a priest. Is it good for me to become a priest? The person said, is it not good for me to become a priest? Or should I become a monk? I want to become a monk. I feel that, someone might say, I feel that I want to devote my life to God. Thy will be done. But it doesn't mean that the person is going to wait for something to happen. He, if he feels strong that he wants to do it, while saying thy will be done, he proceeds forward towards what he wants. Like that couple, they wanted to have a baby. Okay, so they prayed. Proceed forward, do what you have to do to try and have a child. But thy will be done. And then God will see that you're looking for his will and he will not allow you to get pregnant or not allow you to become a monk if it's not good for you, or allow you to become a priest, or allow you. A woman likes a certain guy, or a guy likes a certain woman. And then, we've said this before in those other talks, talk 12, I can't remember now, talk 12, 13, and it said, um, um, I like that fellow, she might say. I feel attracted, I really like that person. Should I approach that person? For marriage, obviously. And then... First pray, is this person for me? Is this person going to be good for my salvation? And will I be beneficial for his salvation? And will he be beneficial for my salvation, the woman says. Okay, so that might happen for a while, maybe one month, two months, three months praying. 
the feeling still goes on. The, 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 the feeling towards that person still goes on. If the person, if you become dead, if you start be losing your feeling towards the person while doing those prayers, that means that it's not worth it. Leave it alone. But some people actually proceed on even though they can see that in their heart that they've lost that initial feeling. But anyway, let's just say the, the feeling's still going on. You proceed on. Then you make contact, whatever you're going to do. All the time praying, they will be done, they will be done, they will be done, they will be done continually. Proceed on. And then if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, that's God's answer. It didn't work. It's the end of it. You accept it. Move on. So, insensibility... This is enough to cause the loss of all the spiritual gifts and even one soul. Insensibility is all the more terrible because its victim does not realise his fatal condition. That's why the saints hated it. They hated this that to have that insensible heart where they don't feel their sins. It was the most woeful thing to them and they would do everything to try and get a sense of repentance and a knowledge of their sins. If a person doesn't have that, doesn't see that, it, as he says here, he says that is really a very bad condition. He's deluded and blinded by his self-opinion and self-satisfaction. Very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. A state of insensibility is very important for the invisible enemy, for our invisible enemy. The devil loves it. When he sees a person in that state, we'll see. He does all in his power to hold us in it to keep us in it, to make us hard, make our heart even harder. How does it make our heart harder? Through sins, through self-opinion, through all those prides and things like that. Without disturbing us, now this is now we come to some inner spiritual life, without disturbing us either with other passions or with temptations from the outside. What does that mean? That the devil, if he sees you're hard, if he sees you don't have a sense of your sins, that you haven't got repentance, he leaves you alone. Doesn't bother you with passions. Doesn't bother you with even temptations from other people. Just leaves you alone. He's happy. And that's why when people, you know, come and, and get advice from priests and then the priest says, okay, so what, you know, what temptations are you having? Mm, none. How about, you know, how old are you? Oh, I'm 20, 25. Okay, 25-year-old guy. Do you have any sexual temptations? No. Okay. Anger with people? No. Jealousy? No, I don't feel jealousy. Then what's the result of that? It means that the person is deceived. The devil has said to his other demons, leave him alone. He's fantastic. However, there are times that the demons can pretend to bother someone so that they can think that they are undergoing spiritual warfare. And I've met people like that whereby they're completely deceived in this fact that they have no passions, etc. But now and then they might get the little temptation, which maybe they even did themselves, they induced it themselves because they read it in the book. It might say in a book, a person is progressing when he becomes distracted in prayer so the person either distracts himself or, because that makes him holy, or the demons do distract a little bit. And the person goes, 
I'm being fought by the demons. I'm, being, I'm, I'm undergoing spiritual warfare. That means that I am spiritual. See how tricky it is? The demons have so many thousands of years of experience in spiritual warfare. What experience do we have? Well, because we've been in the church a couple of years. See, self-opinion, self-satisfaction. Oh, I know, I know. I've read books. I know about the tricks of the demons. Idiot. You can't know the tricks of the demons. When St. Anthony stood on the mountain, his spiritual eyes were, were opened and he looked out where he could see the whole world. It was a spiritual experience. And he could see all the traps and all the tricks of the demons that they used to trick people. And St. Anthony was shocked and he said, how can anyone be spared? How can anyone escape from that? Everyone's going to be lost, basically, because there's just so many traps, so tricky. And he heard, well, either from an angel or from God, the only way to protect oneself from these traps of the demons is humility. Humility. And humility comes when we go to our spiritual fathers and say to them our experiences, our feelings, etc., so that they can check. Now, the spiritual father may not have this spiritual experience. They might not have the discernment to such an extent. That's a fact. Some spiritual fathers have limited spiritual experience. They might not know what you hear. They might actually say to you, um, that experience that you're having is from God. But it might not be. It might be from the devil. Or they might say, that experience you're having is from the devil, but it might be from God. Because they sometimes they don't know. But what happens then? What do we do then? Do we go and find someone holy? If we can, that'd be good. But obviously, um, that's limited. What do we do? If God sees that you're humble, if God sees that you're going to the spiritual father in humility because you don't trust yourself and you ask him and he says something wrong, then he'll protect you because you are going in humility. You are going because you don't trust yourself. Then you're protected. The people who trust themselves, the people who believe in their own abilities, are dead meat, as the expression says. They're gone, they're finished. An example which I've mentioned before was when a Russian elder, some Russian monks, went to Mount Athos for a visit, went to a monastery, and they saw a monk there. And the monk was being teased, put down by the other monks. He was being put down, called names, etc. And the visitors from Russia were, were so shocked at his ability to sit there calm. He was calm, humble, peaceful. And these monks were putting him down. These things happened. Monasteries are hospitals, a place for sick people. Monks are sick people. They're battling, so obviously they're going to have all the passions. So don't be shocked to go, oh, they're monks and they're males. It's ridiculous. So they went up to him later on and said, Father, how do you endure? We've never seen such endurance. How do you endure being put down in such a way and be called those names and etc.? And he goes, it's very easy. To me, they're dogs. 
I just look at them as dogs. What do we learn from that? Calmness, peacefulness, such that these elders who were spiritual from Russia saw him and thought, this man must be holy. But when he opened up his soul and he said that they're just dogs and they realised and they said to each other, or how many, I forgot now, one or whatever, they said, let's go. Let's get out of here before God sends a lightning bolt to burn the place down. They were so uh, shocked at such demonic deception and they ran out away from him. The demons tried to trick a Christian by convincing him that his life is worthy of reward. A self-opinionated person, a person who holds his opinion very highly, I've had conversations with people in person or on the phone. A person rings up. Supposedly they're ringing up a priest to get help. That's what you think. And they're there and they're yep, 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 yep. And at the end of the conversation, apart that I'm dizzy, I realise they haven't even asked one question. A couple of times I have done this. I know it's bad, but just yep, yep, yep. And you can't even, and when you try to advise them, they don't listen. Click, I hang up. So if you do that, don't be shocked if you hear a click. Okay, and it won't be me cutting my toenails. It will be the phone going down. A self-opinionated person who thinks he has some worth or merit cannot repulse the devil's seductions. Sorry, but I have to say, when I hang up on that person, later on I realise that the only solution for that person is to pray for them. In the liturgy, put their name in the liturgy, commemorate them. It's up to God to send something, as, as Metropolitan Ilarion says, if we don't humble ourselves, which is from the saints, if we don't humble ourselves, then God will humble us through some big thing, either a big fall into sin, some catastrophe is going to happen, to humble us. It's like, you know, I'm going to say like a... People are like those wild, unbroken horses or something, and they're just bucking away and they're kicking in there and you're trying to hold them down and you feel like hitting them over the head and then you're trying to hold them and they're just going wild and it might and you're just trying to hold it down and that's the same as the people that just like really on another planet and they're so deceived you can't do anything and actually if you try to help them they become worse so uh it's better just to pray for them the reason why i hanged up so you won't get scandalized is because i couldn't get off the phone if i actually stayed on the phone i could be there for hours Starved to death. The demons tried to trick a Christian by convincing him that his life is worthy of reward. So a self-opinionated person who thinks he has worth, some worth of merit, cannot repulse the devil's seduction, the devil's tricks, enticements, from without because he's possessed and chained by the devil from within. Do you understand that? A person who's self-opinionated who holds his opinion high, thinks that he's worthy of merit, that he's actually good. A person who's in that condition cannot repulse the devil's tricks because he's proud. We're coming now to our end. Oh, good time. I can't believe it. A Christian's greatest success is 
to see and to acknowledge that he is a sinner. That's the success. Now, Christians come to the church, people come to the church, and they begin to lead a spiritual life. They may even go to confession, said some commune very quickly, read books, church services, prayers, prostrations, and all of a sudden something happens and they begin to see themselves or they begin to be bombarded by passions, really bad passions, thoughts, evil, hate, jealousy, anger. All these passions come. And these people believe that something's wrong. They actually say, oh, something's wrong, something's wrong, because they believe that the spiritual life is all those other things, going to services, reading, and all those things. That's what they think Christianity is. When they start getting bombarded with passions and thoughts and people and things like that, they think that they've gone off, that God's not pleased with them. And because of their pride a lot of times, instead of saying, well, that's obviously I'm full of passions, this is the importance of having that thing of coming to the church, understanding that you're sinful. So why would it be a shock? If you come to church understanding that you're sinful, why would you get shocked all of a sudden when you start seeing things? And what happens to a lot of these people is they run away or some lose their minds, some run away, some become just in a certain way where they have a certain type of orthodoxy which suits them and that's it. But it's not. And people come to me and say, I feel this way. I go, that's good. They go, good? How is it good? So because this is what spiritual life is. The fact that you're starting to see the, as we say in Greek, the vothel, the, the, the sewer from within you, is a gift of God. Why are you actually upset about it? He goes, I don't want to see those things. Go to Benny Hinn, if that's the case. Or go somewhere else. Go to the beach. Go have a swim. See that we're so far away from the true spiritual life. And I know people that actually lost themselves, left the church, couldn't do any more, started leading sinful lives because they believed they were fasting. And you tell them, don't fast a lot. You're new. You're new into the church. You're going to get pride from it. No, it, they have to, they do know they're fast, no oils, really strict. Going to church services, running here, running there, doing this, doing that. These things, as we read in the beginning of the talk, lend to vainglory, lead to pride, if it's not accompanied by the inner spiritual life. That's what's called in Greek tapinologia. Tapinosi, which means humility, logo, word. It means that people can be humbly speaking. I'm a sinner. I'm the worst. I'm a squeaky. I'm a, what do they call it, worm. And I'm this and I'm that. You know, and all those things sound humble, but really it's not with the mouth that we want to hear. What God doesn't want, it doesn't, doesn't come at the mouth because the mouth's false. We always say things. How are you today? Very well, we answer automatically. Are we very well? A lot of times we're not. And how are you? And inside of you saying, not, not that I really care how you are, when we say to someone, how are you? How's your family? 
in the back saying, who cares what, what your family's like? <laughs> so our words are different to our mouth. So it's like, I'm a worm. I'm a sinner. When we begin to see our inner self, the ugliness of our sins, and this comes from actual experience of our sins. When St. Peter, when he felt, when, when the grace of God came in him, he said to Christ, get away from me, I'm sinful. I'm not worthy to be near you, see? And that was from God's grace. But St. Peter wasn't perfected yet. After a while, he denied Christ. But that was from God's grace. You are the son of God. And Christ said to him, um, uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal this, but you know God's spirit revealed this to you. It was the grace of God. And that experience that I said when I met that holy person in Jerusalem, Father Ignatius, I don't know if I mentioned it, but when he was praying and I felt certain things, one of the things was, which at the time I didn't really have, but in that moment I had it, which was to have a feeling that you are bad. And that experience I had, that comes from grace. But I said to you, that was not important because straight after that experience, we can start having pride and going away and thinking we're good. But Father Ephraim in America where he says that it comes from actual experience of our sins, that's the true humility. That's when we can keep the grace in us, not just some experiences which can come. Those experiences can also be dangerous. And St. Peter of Damascus said, when the mind begins to see its sins like the sand of the sea, in other words, so many, this, this is a starting point for the soul's enlightenment and is a sign of its health. In other words, this is a sign that you are beginning the spiritual life. This is the way it should be and it should be until our death. I have met people who really have that experience and they say that I've just, it's everything. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I sin in everything. Like, what do you mean? Even when I try to help a person, I have pride or I hate people or if someone doesn't say hello to me properly, I can't stand them and I will ignore them to hurt them or I'm jealous or envious. Some people actually even get jealous of someone else's spouse because that spouse is better than their spouse. And things just goes on and on and on. The more one leads a spiritual life, according to the gospel, cultivating a spirit of repentance, the more they begin to see their sins. People have said to me, I have no feeling for my children. Okay, but aren't you shocked? Why should I be shocked? But isn't that a sin? I'm a mother and I don't feel nothing for my children. Or a man might come up to me and say, I, can't, I don't feel nothing for my wife. Yes. And they're waiting for me to what? To pull out my hair, whatever's left of it. Why? Why do, you, why do they want me to do that? What's the problem? I go, but it's so shocking. I go, yes, it's shocking, but it's also good because at least you see that you have a lack of love and we can only really obtain love or true feeling or true love for our children, or anything. The correct spirituality comes with struggle. Don't run away when we, you know, all of us should not run away when we see our sins. And the truth is that people, I find, are scared. They're actually scared to see themselves. 
They'll do anything and everything to, you know, worldly people, that, that's what they're doing really. They just put their headsets on, going out, whether they take drugs, uh, drinking, going out, fashion, clothes, whatever they're doing. Everything's to, even, you know, immoral lives, sexual activity, whatever they're doing, it has one purpose, and the purpose is to kill in them their conscience. They don't want to feel their conscience. They don't want to see themselves. And unfortunately, a large number of Orthodox Christians do the same. And even though they are in the church, and even though they could be doing a lot of things in the church, could be chanters, could be people that help in the church, could be people who do good deeds, confess even, whatever. But a lot of, of us, or you know, we do have that thing that we don't want to see ourselves. And this is an obstruction in our salvation. Yes, it is painful. And that's why that book that we've got at the back by Metropolitan Yerothos Vlakos, where he says in there about um, psychiatry, that's why a lot of them stop. See, Freud used to say you try and bring up the subconscious of the person to find these hidden traumas and experiences, negative experiences, and by bringing them to the surface the person gets healed. That's what Freud believed. And for many years, that's what people did. They would go and do psychoanalysis. In America, it was like it was the fashion. A lot of people had a, what they used to call a shrink. And some still go, but the thing is now they've changed it. They don't do analysis. They just do pills, most people. Some do cognitive behavioural therapy where they work on the person's thinking. But in general, the psychiatric world has moved away from going deep into the person's subconscious because they found that it was making people worse. And that's Metropolitan said on a spiritual Orthodox perspective, it actually makes a person schizophrenic because they're coming to a realisation of what's in them without actually having the grace of God to heal them. And that's what medication a lot of times does. It just represses keeps the bad feelings down. <clears throat> Medication actually just keeps those thoughts down, not to let them come up. And for some people, that's necessary because if they allow their thoughts to come up, they can go crackers, they can actually commit suicide and become like really bad. And that's why even Elder Paisio said that sometimes those things are necessary for those people. But in general, in general, it's spiritual life. And spiritual life is the Metropolitan said in his book, when a person starts to lead a spiritual life, starts to do the commandments of Christ, yes, he will begin to see himself. And as time goes on, he begins to see deeper and deeper. But with the grace of God, it's easier. And there's a healing that takes place with God's grace. Just doing the commandments of Christ soothes the person, heals the person, as we read before. It gives power to the person. And the mysteries of God give healing power. And the commandments, as we said, and the struggles, etc. So it's very dangerous that. But when you're in the church, we shouldn't be scared. That's why Prophet David in his Psalms where he says, Lord, show me my secret sins. Show me myself. Renew a right spirit within me. Make me to be in the correct spirit. 
I remember once I told this woman who was, she had a bad family life, like she was abused by her parents to some extent, emotionally, physically, and uh, to escape from that, she had to go into a fantasy world, and the fantasy world was the TV. So from young, she used to watch a lot of TV. She came to the church, she stopped that. And I said to her that, yes, yeah, some people can watch TV. Yes, there are some things that are educational, that you need to do, whatever. Even Elder Porfirio says that he used to, when once someone gave him a TV, he watched it, watched the news. He used to see what's going on in the world and he used to pray, have some understanding. There's other issues there that, you know, there are some things that are of use for adults, not for young children. You don't let a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, what are they going to understand? But one day they see an actor who's a nice man, another day they see the same actor who's killing people. Where's the kids going to understand that? It makes them crazy, like she became crazy. Anyway, so I said to her, if you start watching TV again, you will become completely absorbed. Your whole spiritual life will, will stop, what little you had, and you will become hooked like a drug. And from what I found out, yes, that's what happened, completely hooked, can't stop, just watching video after video after video after video, just, just obsessed, can't stop. Because what she's doing is she's numbing herself. She doesn't want to feel the pain. Pain of what? The pain maybe of her childhood, that's fair enough, or perhaps just the pain of herself, of her inner self, of her own passions. But if she does the spiritual life with humility, asking God for help, then she will become healed in the process. Another saint says that raising the dead is nothing compared to knowing your own sins. This is why the saints could keep themselves from becoming proud. They knew that without repentance, one can't be saved. So when they did their miracles, it, a lot of times it didn't move them, didn't interest them. Even if they preached and saved thousands of people, if they didn't have their own personal repentance, to them it didn't count. If they wrote books, but they didn't have their personal repentance, it didn't count. As it says in the epistles, if you give your body to be burned, etc., if you don't have love, which obviously comes from repentance, it's all for nothing. A Christian's life is nothing less than active and constant repentance. That's what a Christian's life is. Continually repenting. I hear that a lot of people after talks do have an enthusiasm to struggle and listen, which is good, and are doing that. That's good. But if people are coming here and only coming out of interest, not really for the right reason, I would advise don't come. See, I'm not interested in numbers. Because what happens is you're damaging yourself by coming and ignoring. It's not good. The purpose of the talks is to bring for those who haven't yet, a sense of spiritual life to come closer to God for their salvation. That's the purpose. not meant here to intellectually stimulate. Another thing which I want to say, which I don't mean to scandalise, but I'm going to say it anyway because I don't really uh, think there's the truth. You know that in America these CDs are sold. They don't come here, obviously. They're not in person at the talks. Their whole thing is they listen to the talks audio. 
And I've heard from the feedback that sometimes people say to me they've heard them once, twice, three times, four times. They say that I hear them in the car, whatever. And then it helps me because he says that every time I hear them, I learn something new, new, new. You people are coming and you're hearing the talk for three hours. It is impossible to retain much of that. You can't really retain it. And um, it's, to me, I don't understand how someone can come, listen to the talk, go away, and you don't get the CD to have it there and to re-listen to it, to study what's been said, because there's no way you can remember. Now, I'm not saying that for the money, but the money is necessary, I'll tell you why, because it helps... God to see that you're actually making an effort. Remember I said before, when you make an effort to go to church, you actually make an effort. Last month I said, anything we do, like the prodigal son, all he did was he thought to himself, I've, I have sinned, I've done bad. And then he made his approach to start to go towards his father's house, which symbolises repentance. But he just came towards, and then the father, which represents God, came to him. But why didn't the father come to him before when he was doing his sins because he's waiting for the person's effort. Remember Elder Porfirios? When someone said, Elder, this person wanted to come and see you. Should I go and pick them up? He goes, no, don't pick them up. Should I ring them up? No, let them make their own effort. They must make an effort. Remember when Christ, when he went out, he went far away so that the people can make the effort. And that effort that we're doing, that coming towards the couple of steps forward, is what God needs. That's all he needs. Then he can come towards us because there needs to be an effort. There needs to be a sacrifice. You need to re-listen to things. And that's why I'm saying those people overseas who actually um, live on the other side of the world are perhaps obtaining more benefit than you people who are here. Because they listen to the talk and they say, and then I go back and then I listen to a section, then I re-listen to that section. That's studying. That's like studying. It's like you go to a lecture at the university. I don't mean to compare, but you go to a lecture and you just sit there. What? You take no notes or you don't have a recording. What are you, Superman or something, or Superwoman, that you can remember everything? You can't remember everything. My recommendation is the arena for those who are interested in spiritual struggle. If you're not, don't buy them. Go and buy like um, a magazine, car magazine, maybe a computer magazine, Vogue. I don't know what those things are. Work out what the new hairdos are. And then another one, which I've already said before, is the prayer book, which I want to talk about, which I will be doing, God willing, next year. We will be concentrating on the prayers to help understand the prayers. Anyway, that's, that's another thing. Next month, with God's help, we are going to be doing a, a talk on how to help the dead. That's a very important talk and it will be uh, very beneficial. All of us have people that have passed into the next life. And there was a topic which I think I remember from when I was in Greece. It said... The dead need our help. I think that was the name of a book. The dead need our help. The dead cannot help themselves. Once they're into the next life, they can't help themselves. That's it. 
they are dependent on us. They need our help. Unless they've been saved, then they can help us. But few of those. Most people need our help. By helping the dead, we also begin to understand our own spiritual needs and we begin to prepare for our own deaths. Very, very important talk. Next month, we'll be doing the Panahida, which is the memorial prayer for the dead. So when you come on that day, you'll be submitting names for the dead, which we'll write that in the emails. Those who have not put their emails in if they want, they can put it there. I think you all have, but we send out notices and things like that. And December will be the unction service. And that's a very important service. And begin your struggle. Just begin to struggle. That's all it is. Not perfect. People that come to church are not coming because they're perfect like the Pharisee. They're coming because they're sinful. They acknowledge their sins. They acknowledge they're sick. And they come into the service to receive God's grace for healing. Okay, any last issues before we go? The golden things that we have in the church is a good question. The golden, all the gold that we have in the church, which I support, and all the nice things, always the Christians made the best for God. It's really humiliating when we have our houses with beautiful everything, but God's house with rubbish. So I do believe that always it's been a practice that even the farmers would give their, their best animals to the church back in the Old Testament, but even in the Christian church, the village people used to give their best wheat for the flour, their best wine for the, to turn into the blood of Christ. Everything was the best for the church. The church belongs to the people. And when the priest goes, it doesn't go to him, it goes to the next generation, and next generation. it doesn't belong to any one individual. When you give to these Hari Krishnas, Hari Ramas and all them, and the other ones, the, the Benihins of this world, I just sometimes wonder where all that money goes, you know. And, um, and there has been some exposures on television lately in this Today, Tonight and Current Affair that they are, a lot of it's going into their own pockets. So if you see a priest who you feel, but you have to be sure, that is not doing good work with the money that you give, then give it where you believe that it will be good. Where you see work being done. Where you see work being done on the church. And remember that the financials of each church is open. While the financials of these people, you can't really get to them. They don't want to expose their financials. But in the churches, like this church, for example, from what I've heard, they have their annual meeting and they give the financials to whoever wants it. And you can look at what it is. And most of the time, they don't even have money to pay their bills. But I believe that the chalice should be the best chalice and the icons should be of the best quality because this is showing our... God doesn't need our gold. But we have the example of the woman who came and spilt and poured on his on his Christ's feet that expensive, beautiful, sweet fragrance. And it was very expensive. And then Judas said that should have been sold and given to the poor, but he wanted it for himself. But the point is there, it was very expensive. And what did Christ say? Leave her alone. She has done this for me. And this is an indication that God is pleased if we are doing that for his church, for example, where we come and pray, we are showing our respect to God.
You know, I find it really hard when we have our houses which have got beautiful things and you come to the church and everything's cheap. See, what I try to do is whatever I do, I want to do the best. The best that I can, the best quality, because to me it's a sin for the church to have all little cheapy things, yet we have an expensive car or a nice lounge chair which can cost five, 6000 leather, and yet the church might have ragged vestments. To me, it shows that people don't really have a real love for God. It's shown. It's not that God needs it. We need to do it to show ourselves. It's not enough to say to your wife, I love you, and then see her there like half dead and not being able to take care of the children. You go, oh, honey or love, whatever you call it, I love you, right? It sounds good, but where's the proof? The proof's in the pudding. What are you doing to show that you love her, right? Maybe sometimes the woman should say that words are not enough, my dear, but actions. So it's the same with the church. I love the church. I love the church, but I'm not going to give much for it because I'm going to do it for myself. One guy actually said to me, I said to him, he had a passion with money, I could tell. And I said to him, uh, they've got a very bad passion with money. I said, you're very greedy. I said, you need to give money. Go and give to the poor. Go buy some books. Go give out things. Do whatever you can. I said, do some work. I said, because this passion you've got is, and he goes to me, oh, you don't understand. I need the money on the side. I need this, and I've got this. And he goes, yap, 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 just going on and on and on of how he has to save for money and how he needs the money for this and other means of money in that. And I said to him, because he rings me up often, I said to him, I'm telling you, because you've asked me to tell you when I notice things. He goes, yes, you have told you. I go, I'm telling you that you've got a very bad demon of money. He goes, no, no, we need the money. Okay, leave it at that. Months later, he says to me, I go, how are you going? He goes, oh, not very good. I go, what's wrong? He goes, oh, he goes, I'm gambling. I go, really, how much? He goes, oh, sometimes $600 to $1,000 a day. I go, oh, really? I go, when did that start? He goes, oh, it started in whatever, April, whatever it was, say. April. Wasn't April the day I told you to start giving your money? To start giving your money? And he goes, I don't remember. I go, I'm telling you. Check your Optus bill, whatever you got there. Check the date. Look at my telephone number. And you'll find that pretty much after that, because you didn't listen. I said, you didn't listen. I didn't want the money because if, if I took, take the money myself, he's going to say, you, you only gave me the advice to get the money. I said, don't. Give it to priests down there. I don't care what you do. It's from another state. Just Start to exercise, give some money away because what you've got is bad. He didn't listen and I said to him, well, you didn't want to buy some books, you didn't want to give out some things, you didn't want to make some leaflets, you didn't want to give money to the poor. I said, now you're giving it but it's beyond your power. I go, oh, by the way, how's the money that you wanted to save? He goes, oh, it's dwindling. Because that's what he said, we have to put some money to the side. I go, I don't think you've got much left. He goes, no, not much left at all. Punishment in a sense. That's it. Um, we will finish that. Uh, it is truly me. Yeah.
Through the praise of the Holy Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. 